Welcome back, everybody, to Bill's Chat on the Built in Buffalo Podcast Network. This is Josh. With me, as always, is Luca. Luca, how's it going? It's going great. I mean, it was a great uh, weekend we just had. Obviously, there was a fantastic Bills game that we'll dive into soon, but uh, it was a nice uh, sunny weekend. It just finished with a little rain, and I'm ready to record an episode 20, I believe, we're in now. Yeah. I mean, Luca, you and I have talked numerous times about how if and when the Bills win the Super Bowl this year, I'm going to come out to Buffalo and we're going to enjoy that parade. But my question now is, am I going to get frequent flyer miles from flying out there for the next 10 years? Because after Saturday, I am convinced the Bills are about to go on one of those dynasty runs where they just rip off six or seven Super Bowls in a row. Yeah, that was uh, the Broncos game was, uh, to put it simply, a performance that had you thinking how in the world can you convince yourself otherwise if you're a fan of any opposing team that this is not the team to beat for years to come because they just absolutely destroyed the Broncos and there's a lot we'll talk about about it whatnot but this is a team that I don't even think it matters who we're playing on any good day that this team trots out of that tunnel in any stadium they're going to kick their ass and they're they're going to dominate at times even it's what what an ego boost this past game was. What 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 a stroke of just brilliance this team put out there and uh, I can't wait to talk more about it. My favorite thing about this game and there was a lot to like, but my favorite thing and just so you guys know, like if you're newer to this show, we do have our tongues planted in our cheek a little bit when I'm saying seven Super Bowls in a row and we understand that the context of this was a preseason game. So we're not going as far as it maybe it sounds like we are. But my favorite thing about this game, Luca, was the fact that McDermott had to pity punt to get his punt unit some work. The Broncos could not stop the Bills to the point where McDermott had to punt in a situation that he goes for it 10 times out of 10 in the regular season. And he was like, well, I got, I feel like I got to give Matt, Matt Hawk one last kick before I kick him to the curb. So punt team, get out there. That to me was just excellent. Yeah. <laughs> what what was it? Uh, I know we'll talk about it too. The first six possessions, it was just score every time. It was it was the Patriots playoff game all over again, except we were just going down the roster, having our depth go in there. It's, it was, uh, what was it? Notre Dame, Miami back in the 80s with Jimmy Johnson, where it was like, oh, pull the dogs, you know, lay off a little bit. They put in the backups and Miami was still kicking the ass of Notre Dame. And everyone's like, stop running up the score. It's like, what do you want our backups to do? They're finally getting their chance to play and they're just dominating your backups. Like, sorry, here's a pity punt. Here's, you know, we just want to stretch our legs a little bit. As you said, maybe it was a final goodbye to Matt Hawk. Thanks for punting for us one last time. But um, oh, just just a chef's kiss of a game. Just an absolute brilliant, brilliant time watching that from start to finish. Yeah, and the context of the game, if, if you read it, and, you know, obviously everybody knows the Bills starters started and the Broncos starters didn't. So when you look at it through that lens, then obviously you would expect the Bills to win this game, which they did. As we say on this show, one of our favorite terms is look under the hood a little more. Okay, yes, the Bills started. Yes, the Bills starters were out there. But the four best defensive players on this team, in no particular order, Von Miller, Tredavious White, Micah Hyde, and Jordan Poyer, all going to be in the NFL top 100, by the way. Tredavious White may not make it, though. I, I just thought about that. He probably won't coming off of the injury on Thanksgiving because they the voting shortly after that. So he probably isn't going to make it. But all four of those guys have been all pro at some point in their career. The four best players, they didn't play. Josh Allen threw three passes and Stefan Diggs and Gabe Davis totaled one and a half drives. 
So let's take it a little easy on the Bills scored six touchdowns on their first six drives because it was nothing but ones against twos. The Bills ones were out there for a cup of coffee and not all the ones played. So to me, this game is as much as we we are high on the national media is high on the stars on the Bills. And we know the names. I just named some off. We, we know the Josh Allens, the Diggs, the Von Millers, et cetera. What makes this team great, what makes this team a Super Bowl contender, and what gives Luca and I so much confidence on a weekly basis to say that this is the team that can get the Bills to the finish line is the depth of this roster. The depth of this roster is unmatched around the league, in my opinion, and that was on display in the second and third and fourth quarters of that game when it just looked like men against boys out there, Luca, when they were just pushing the Broncos defenders off the line of scrimmage. And you made a comment to me before we went on the air that it was like, how many good running backs do the Bills have? Because there were an insane amount of running lanes out there. It was it, every time I looked up when the Bills were on the field, because we talked about it when the second half came around, I was out at a bar and I seemed to be finding myself a little bit more in conversation with who I was enjoying drinks with rather than how much I was paying attention to the game, at least in depth. But every time I looked up to see when the bills were at least on offense, it's, you know, Blackshear or it was Moss out there or it was Duke Johnson, whoever it was, they were just gashing up this Broncos defense. And it just, it was an easy day for them. I mean, we just absolutely dominated the ground and pound. And it's a sentiment, I believe, more for even the offensive line than it is the running backs. But I'm not going to take anything away from them. These running backs have looked good. I mean, there was a discussion we had last week about Blackshear. And is is he someone of note looking forward? And he put out another strong performance. Everyone looked good that was stepping into that backfield. And it's a sentiment to both the offensive line, as I just said. But give the running backs credit. They did a good job, too. And yeah, it was just readily apparent every offensive drive that we were going to dominate the line of scrimmage and these running backs were going to get whatever they wanted to go grab and achieve on that field. It was fantastic. It was the running backs deserve a lot of credit for the success of how we were that last game clear as day. Everyone played well, but those running backs were stellar from top to bottom. Every one of them put in an unbelievable performance. I know we'll dive into it more soon later, but man, it was just, it was very noteworthy. It, it popped off the screen every time I looked up and I saw it. It was fantastic. It really was. And the depth on this team is also fantastic. And this is a sport of attrition. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be situations where you're down to your second, your third, maybe your fourth person on the depth chart. And the Bills just look to be in a terrific spot on most spots on their roster when they have guys like Tavon Austin, OJ Howard, former first round picks in this league, uh, Duke Johnson, who was a former Pro Bowl running back playing in the fourth quarter for their team. It is a luxury we have not had a lot of in Buffalo. All right, Luca, well, we're going to talk about everything we're going to go through for tonight's episode since this game was such a blowout and Unlike the first preseason game where I feel like there were two or three players that really stood out and it gave us a launch off point for talking about, say, Khalil Shakir or Isaiah Hodgins or Case Keenum tonight, I think what was better to do is we're two games into this preseason. For the most part, we're probably done looking at the starters in the preseason. Training camp is behind us. Let's just take a step back and go through the positions again and just say what we think we know. Uh, because the team does have to cut down to 80 players coming up this Tuesday. Four more roster cuts. The Bills are currently at 84. But 
we're creeping up ever so closer to that 53 man roster cut down day. And it is going to be a tough, tough decision. We're not going to try to cut down to 53 tonight, but we're just going to give a high level view of what we think we know about each position group. And then we will spin it forward, obviously, to the Bills next preseason game. And we'll also talk about some storylines going on around the NFL. But Luca, before we get into the game, I think one of the biggest things to come out of this week was the actual decision by Sean McDermott to play his starters. And you and I had a chance to talk in Discord, but when that decision came down, it was obviously after we had posted our podcast last week. So now we do have the benefit of hindsight of knowing that nobody got injured and the Bills came out of that game with no long-term concerns injury-wise that they didn't already have going into that game. And they are a very healthy football team with the exception of what's going on with Tredavious White and Jordan Poyer, who we do anticipate should be back by game number one of the season. With the benefit of hindsight, knowing that the Bills came out of that game healthy, Luca, let's just have a conversation on the decision to play the starters. We're seeing a trend in this league where teams are skewing away from that. Sean McVay said last year that as long as he's the coach of the Rams, Matthew Stafford will never play a down in the preseason. We're seeing other teams go that way. We're seeing teams like Baltimore take pride in their preseason winning streak. The Bills, by the way, are up to 10 straight preseason winning games, but Baltimore's um, up to 21 at the time of recording. They haven't gone final yet against the Cardinals. Luca, what is your opinion, one, on teams playing their starters in the preseason And two, what was your reaction when you found out that McDermott was going to do it this week against the Broncos? I personally will never be a fan of playing starters, at least your blue chip starters. And what I mean by that is 17, 14, 50, all of them. Like, sorry, 40 and 50, honestly, even Rousseau, it can, he might be approaching that blue chip status. But um, Allen Diggs, you know, Vaughn, even a healthy Trey White, you know, Poyer, Hyde, if they were all 100% health, you say week one's tomorrow and they're going to be starting, I don't want them playing in the preseason. You know exactly where you're going to get out of them. They're all all pros. They do not need to smell the field when it comes to preseason. They can be out there. I guess smelling the field is as much as what they should be doing. They should be out on the sideline, just enjoying the day with the rest of the crew that is their team, trying to figure everything else out. That's it. I'm not a person that enjoys it. I will never argue with someone that says they want their starters to stretch their legs and at least get comfortable going in the season. But comfortable to me is the absolute most what we saw Josh Allen do, let's say, this past weekend. He threw three balls, he played one drive, and he got his ass off the field immediately after that. That's it. That's all I want to see Allen do out of three games in the preseason. That drive, that's where I put it. So my reaction to this, too, when we heard that they were going to be playing a healthy amount, I'm happy, hindsight being 2020, I'm happy that a healthy amount apparently is just one drive for 17, a quarter for digs, you know, just not a ton, but a healthy amount apparently is keeping them healthy for the amount that they play. Okay, whatever. That's fine. I'm happy that no one got hurt. The problem is they could have gotten hurt. It's still a reality that anything can happen just because they're out there on the field wearing pads. You don't know an offensive lineman slips and rolls over Allen's ankle. Now you're dealing with that problem. I mean, offensive line have that happen to them throughout the season all the time. It seems like it's a regular occurrence. You never know when that kind of fluke thing will occur. So why risk it in a game that means absolutely nothing, especially when 
you your aspirations are to win a Super Bowl, and it's not unrealistic. It's, it's a reality that we live in today. We are betting favorites. We will probably be saying this throughout the entire year, how we are betting favorites, and there's a reason for it. So I don't want to hear that starters are getting any meaningful snaps in preseason. I personally don't want to hear that. The reality is, luckily, everyone got out of that healthy. We're good. Everything's okay. I can be happy now that they did stretch their legs a little bit. But I will never get off my soapbox when it comes to I don't want to see them dressed up on the field doing anything in preseason. If the game means nothing, if it will do nothing for us come Super Bowl push, I don't want to see any of them out there. Do not risk our blue chips. Do not risk our money and our future just to kind of see how they're feeling in a meaningless game. Period. End of story. Don't want it. Never want to see it. I'm hoping as the years progress and Allen's career progresses, and obviously he's going to get older at some point, he will not be trucking linebackers when he's 30, 31 years old. Maybe he will. I don't know. But the reality is he probably won't be. And at that point in time, you won't need to be playing him. It'll be like the Peyton Manning treatment or the Big Ben treatment where they're so valuable and now they're hitting an age where it's like, I mean, bubble wrap them. Just do not even let them come close to the field unless they're in sweats. I hope that reality comes sooner rather than later. I'm glad that no one got hurt, but the end of the day is to your questions. I never want to hear that they're starting. And the fact that they did this past weekend, I'm upset about it still a little bit. I'm just happy that it went very successfully and all of them remain healthy. Now that's kind of where I sit on it sitting here tonight as we record. So I'm with you hundred percent. I almost always have no interest in seeing important players play in preseason games. We have seen a shift even in the last 10 years where when you think about 10 years ago, it was everybody's starters played, even the elite running backs. And that's a high contact position they were playing. And it was a, a four game preseason schedule at that point in time. Maybe the first game you get a drive or two and then they'd come out. The second game you play almost a half. The third game, you would have your starters go into the third quarter. Like coaches talked about, we want to get them get a half under their belt and then go in for halftime and and rep resting for halftime and then coming back out and, and ramping back up to play again. And then the fourth game, you know, they'd come out for a cup of coffee and then get off the field and get ready for opening day. And now we've shifted to much more of a situation where some teams don't play their starters at all. And to me, that in this, in a sense is an analytics discussion. And I know this isn't necessarily analytics, but if you follow me here, when you think about the way analytics has, I don't want to say taken over, but definitely been integrated into professional football, we've seen teams shift their strategies because of this. One example is fourth downs, right? So on any given situation, in any given play, there's a computer that can come up with a, a formula for, okay, the Bills are fourth and three against the Panthers coming up here. Here's the game situation. Here's the score. The percentages say you should go for this fourth down and they're using data from decades of years of tracking football. So it doesn't matter if you have the best offense in the league, the worst offense in the league, all of that is calculated and baked into that analytic number that tells you that your win percentage goes up or down based on whether or not you decide to go for it. You don't judge based on the result. You judge based on the decision. And that's where analytics has really creeped into the NFL. Teams have analytics people on their staffs. 20 years ago, coaches would use what we call gutalytics, where it's like, oh, I feel like we should punt here because that's just what I'm feeling, where now they're using a lot more data-driven decision-making in their strategy. Well, 
the simplest analytic you can say, and this is, this is why I hesitate to say analytics, but the reason why I think teams are trending this way, you can't get somebody hurt if they're not playing. And that's what teams are learning is as much as warming up for the regular season and getting your feet wet on the field and getting experience out there and hitting somebody else is important. You can't get hurt. Well, I mean, you can, there's ways to get hurt, but you're not going to get hurt that day if you're not on the field playing. That's simple. Anybody can understand that. You don't have to have a degree to understand that. But what is going on, I think, in analytics where you need to almost pump the brakes a little bit. Keep in mind, I said I agree with Luca. I would not have played the starters. We have to remember that professional football players and professional football coaches, as much as we try to turn them into a math equation based on data and probability, at the end of the day, they are still human beings. And human beings have that human tendency of being emotional and having emotional highs and emotional lows. And not every human being is the same. And professional coaches have to be given some benefit of the doubt in these situations. So while the analytics and while the data would tell you that it's almost never worth the risk to play your important players in games that have zero meaning in the outcome of the season, we I think there is at least a conversation to be had that these are, in theory, the 32 best football coaches in the world. We can argue about that. I'm sure it's not true, but you, you get where I'm coming from. And in this particular case, Sean McDermott is a leader of this football team. He His profession is how do I lead people? He studies all the great leaders. I love his passion about being a leader. He's always talking about books. I heard him on Eric Wood's podcast talking about how in the off season, he just engulfs himself in books and learning about different leaders from, from history, not just in sports, but in life and, and different tactics they use. And he's always trying to find a way to help benefit him as a sports leader. So we have to at least respect the fact that he has his finger on the pulse of his team. And while the analytics, the numbers on the Excel spreadsheet say, don't play your stars, He's well aware that if he puts Josh Allen on the field against the Denver Broncos on Saturday, there's a chance Josh Allen can get hurt. He's also well aware that he's at practice every day and he might see his team missing tackles or looking sloppy on offense or needing to get live reps against somebody other than the defense that they play every single day in practice. So that's where I think we at least need to be open to the fact that while analytics can help drive decisions, they don't need to be the final yes or no. That's what coaches are paid for. And to Sean McDermott's credit, Luke, and I'll kick it back to you quickly. I feel like McDermott, his entire time in Buffalo, Nathan Peterman aside, has had very few missteps. And yeah, I mean, we can talk about game situations, right? Like obviously the game situation that ended the season last year was a misstep, but I'm talking about like larger view missteps, not necessarily whether or not to punt on an, on an individual fourth down. More so how when you look at the larger data, he's one of the more aggressive coaches when it comes to fourth downs. When you look at the larger data, he's one of the more aggressive coaches when it comes to throwing the ball versus running the ball. And that's another analytic that a good passing play is just worth so much more than a good running play. And the data shows that if you're a good passing team, you're going to be successful over the length of a regular season than if you're a good running team. And he's he's ahead of all of that. So at some point, I do want to trust the fact that he knows the analytics. He knows that that the risk that he was taking 
And while I don't know what he saw as the value of getting his team out there, I at least want to leave some space open to trusting his judgment that he saw value in having his stars play on Saturday. To everything you just said, my response is simply, I don't want anyone to take my opinion or anyone's that opinion for that matter as something that should be in consideration when discussing how McDermott does his job. We are fans. We sit here and we watch for a team that we love based on everything that we watched over these past years. We do not coach football teams. We do not run organizations. We do not do any of that. Sean McDermott has been in the building that is the NFL for a very long time for a reason. He's very good at what he does. And one thing that I know we have brought up before and what kind of goes into everything that you just said is Sean McDermott has been proven to be a very good man management of a coach. He is very good at understanding how to run a team and how to connect and drive a large group of men to achieve great things for a lot of years. It's what he is very good at. Look at the team that he got into the playoffs to break the curse or the, you know, the inability to make the playoffs back in 2017. That roster, if you really dive deep into it, should not have made the playoffs. But because of Sean McDermott and who he is and how he was able to get a lot out of a little because he is very good at managing what is in front of him, he was able to make that group of men achieve something that I don't think any Bills fan thought was going to be possible in that season. And that just is a testament to how good of a coach he is in that regard. So, yes, I trust in Sean McDermott. And basically, my point to that is, I have my opinion, and my opinion will not change, but I also trust in Sean McDermott at this point that he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's taking a calculated risk, whatever it may be, to do what he did in the preseason. I am okay with that. It's not like I'm sitting here going, like, I'm not going to get caught on the point that, oh, man, we shouldn't have played our starters. They look good, everything like that, but McDermott's an idiot. He shouldn't have started his players. No, Sean McDermott does everything for a reason, and he knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for a very, he's been doing it at a very high level for a very long time, and there's proof of it, and I'm not going to question what he just did this past weekend only because my opinion differs. It, it would be ridiculous. I'm a fan. I'm just, I'm a couch coach. That's all I am. That's all I'll ever be, most likely. I mean, I don't know, but mo- most likely. Um, and I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with McDermott doing what he did because I also ultimately trust McDermott, just like I trust Mc, you know, I trust Brandon Bean to do his job. I trust McDermott to do his job. They're, they've been in their positions for a long time, and they're very good at what they do. They have put together this roster, and they have put together this incredible team from top to bottom to be Super Bowl favorites. And I have just said that once again, and there's a reason for it, and I will trust it. I will never question it. It's just my opinion will also never change at the same time because, I mean, I'm I'm allowed to have my opinion. And it's if I were in his position, I probably would do things differently. But also there's a reason I sit here and he sits there. That's how it's always going to be. And I respect that also. And guess what? I'm not going to question it. I'll say it for the billionth time. I will never question McDermott. And I respect everything he does. And he has seemingly gotten a lot of success from the things he's done before. So I would imagine that it's going to continue down that road as we watch this team throughout the season here and then years to come. 
however he wants to manage this roster and however he wants to manage his blue chips and his depth, whatever it may be, I don't care. Be, well, I mean, I care in my personal opinion, but I don't care in regards of I trust he's doing what he thinks is best for the team now and moving forward. So I'm just going to live in that reality because ultimately, what am I supposed to do about it? And we're going to move forward. Luckily, everyone's healthy as again. And um, we got an exciting season ahead of us. Yeah. And it feels like even he's trending toward a future of not playing the starters. When you look at it, I mean, at the grand scheme of things, this preseason is most likely going to go by with Josh Allen throwing three passes. So last, last preseason, Josh Allen played, I believe two drives against the Green Bay Packers. So if you want to look at it that way, one drive this year, it's trending down. Um, so you know, we're going to talk about what all that means. I'm totally with you. Let's not risk our starters, but I also understand that McDermott has a reason why he does things. All right, Luca, before we get into the preseason game, there was some Bills news this week. Um, first and foremost, the Bills won a football game 42 to 15 over the Denver Broncos, where the Bills scored touchdowns on their first six possessions of the game gave you some serious super wild card vibes against the new England Patriots when they were out there dominating on offense. It was a lot of fun to see, and we are going to get into it here in just a bit. And then some sad news, uh, Luke Knox, the brother of Bill's starting tight end Dawson Knox, uh, died this week at the age of 22 years old. Just a very sad situation. Dawson Knox obviously did not play in the game on Saturday as he is spending time with his family. You know, Luca, this is such a sad situation and you feel for everybody involved, but I am just amazed at the way bills fans continue to take tragic situations and find a way to spend something positive out of it. And what they did this week with Dawson Knox's charity, uh, the P U N T charity, which is a pediatric pediatric cancer organization Bills fans in just a matter of three days raised $130,000 for that charity that Dawson Knox runs. Just a beautiful gesture by Bills fans. And we've seen this time and time again. They did something similar for Josh Allen's charity when his grandma died the night before the game. We saw them donate money to Andy Dalton's charity just for helping the Bills get into the playoffs. We, we saw an outpouring of support for Brian Dable last year when he lost his grandma and his grandpa, both like in the span of several weeks, you know, that such a sad situation. There's, there's certainly definitely not enough positive here to, to wipe away the negative, but when you see a fan base rally and find a way to at least put some smiles on people's faces in the wake of something so sad, it just tells you like how special these fans are. And I'm sure you know, players like Dawson Knox and Josh Allen that have been impacted by this, by this fan base, really take notice of it. It, it. The one thing that really stood out about this unfortunate circumstance was I remember where I was when, uh, you know, learning the news of unfortunately Dawson's brother, Luke, passing away. And I was going on Twitter like a lot of people I'm sure do, you want to learn and understand what happened, especially something as shocking as that, because yes, to my knowledge, Luke Knox was just his younger brother that was still in college playing ball. How in the world does a 22 year old kid just up and pass away, unfortunately? So you want to understand that within maybe 10 minutes, I was seeing tweets everywhere about where can we donate? And then immediately following that, hey, 
this is an organization of which Dawson works big with punt and people were just starting to tweet out how they had donated. You know, I think I saw some out there that were 1788 or um, some, I, I'm trying to remember Luke's number. He was 19. I want to say at Ole Miss uh, or wherever he was. Uh, FIU. Um, he played at FIU. FIU. Yep. Thank you. Um, it, and it was his number and then 88 following things of that nature, you know, something to show exactly why they were doing it on top of. And then just, it was, it was catching on like wildfire fire, like everyone, like everything else, man, I am struggling to talk tonight, like everything else in the past with Josh Allen and Dable and all of that stuff. And it, it, it is, it's something special. It, it's, it's a big thing where people's immediate mindset is not only how unfortunate a circumstance is, but how can we at least put a little bit of a light to it and make something positive out of negative, you know, how do we turn lemons into lemonade, you know, and that's some bad lemons, but they try to at least do something to make good on a horrible situation. And as you pointed out, it's unfortunately something that I don't think there's enough out there that could ultimately tilt it to a positive, but at least bring something to Dawson and his family that they can highlight and really look on and be like, this is, this is what Luke Knox's legacy has done immediately following an unfortunate circumstance where he passed. And it, it's a special thing. And it, it's awesome that we are part of a fan base that has such a positive outlook on big negative moments time and time again. And it's, it's props to this team. It's, it's props to this organization and it's props to the fan base to really like try to do something, whatever they can, because realistically, none of us can do something for the Knox family. So what can we do that Dawson is involved in that at least will make him feel better about such a horrible circumstance? Because this is an organization he cares about. We, we are there for him and we want to show that we're there for him. This is a perfect way of doing it. And it's, it's awesome. It, I can't say enough good things about this. And it's, again, obviously our thoughts are with the Knox family and everything in this horrible time. You know, hopefully, hopefully he takes all the time he needs to come around with his family and they, you know, they can grieve in this time. Um, But it's definitely a nice little highlight there to just see fans rally around a negative moment and donate to an organization that Dawson himself cares about deeply. I think you said it perfect. It's a legacy thing for, for Luke Knox. And this is something that, you know, you're, you're never prepared really for anybody in your life to die. You're never prepared for it really, unless it's, you know, it's a situation that, you know, somebody's terminal and you see it coming, especially somebody that's 22 years old, you know, as a parent having to, to see that happen to your child as an older brother, you know, you're just never, you're never in a mindset where you're, you're ready to wake up to that kind of news. And, you know, the, as the pain starts to, you know, subside a little bit and they get used to this new reality of their life, you know, there will be some positives for them to realize of the impact of donating to that charity. So like Lucas said, our, our thoughts and our love and our hearts are with the Knox family right now. And we wish them nothing but the best as they, um, they try to navigate this tough situation. And Luca, there's really no easy way to transition back to football, but that's what we are going to do here as we do dive into this preseason game, 42 to 15 over the Denver Broncos. And we talked about it on the outset of the show that there was no one particular standout performance that really led to, let's have a conversation about this player. So instead, let's just go position by position. We can talk about in the context of this game or in the context of both preseason games and training camp, what do we think we know about these position groups at this point? And we're going to start with the position group that everybody wants to know about, and that's quarterbacks. And Luca, I have a hot take 
You're probably not going to like it. I did not prepare you for this. Get your oven mitts ready. I think Josh Allen has solidified himself as the starting quarterback of this team. Unbelievable take. I don't even know how you could be on that kind of <laughs> thought process. Just let's have a conversation about a competition. No, I mean, of course, obviously <laughs> yeah. can't even joke about that anymore. No, not at all. But I do think Case Keenum, and there was never any concern from this particular podcast. We talked about it last week. He was in a situation where he was out there with twos and threes going against ones from Indy. That's not his game. He's a backup quarterback. He, If he's in a situation where the, the team around him is nice, he can keep the team in the car on the road. And that showed very well on Saturday. He was 16 of 18 with a touchdown. You know, he, he was never going to be as bad as that game against Indy. He's certainly not a 16 for 18 with nonstop touchdown drives, three, three touchdown drives in a row as he was against Denver. The truth will obviously be in the middle but Luca, I think we said it last week. We have full trust in Case Keenum for what he is, a reliable veteran backup quarterback with plenty of starting experience for winning teams. He did take a team to the NFC Championship game. And what the Bills need out of their backup quarterback is somebody to keep the car on the road for a short period of time. If something happens to Josh Allen that ends his season, Luca and I will immediately go into off-season conversation. <laughs> we, we won't. We'll analyze the games, and we'll still try to talk ourselves into what's going to happen. But this season goes as far as Josh Allen goes. If he's gone, then it's going to be really challenging, and there's not a backup quarterback out there that could probably keep it on the rails heading toward the Super Bowl. But if Josh Allen has to miss a month, I think Case Keenum is that dude that can help you win two or three games during that month and keep you on track for everything you want. We never doubted it, Luca, but it was nice to see Case Keenan put on that performance for Bills fans that maybe we're feeling a little bit nervous. I th I mentioned it off air, and I think it's a good time to bring it up. This was a good ego stroke for Keenum. I think last week really got to him, and I think we even saw it as he celebrated scores during this game. He was, you know, fist pumping. He was getting excited. He was getting very, very happy, very, you know, it was this was perfect for Keenum to kind of have a bounce back off a tough week when he was playing against ones without any quality ones around him. And it kind of was a reverse. As you mentioned, he's not a 16 for 18, you know, one touchdown. And then every drive was a scoring drive or every drive for this matter was a touchdown scoring drive. He's not that guy. Let's be realistic about it. But this was a good game for him to really be confident in who he is. And exactly what you just said is what he is. He's a guy with winning experience on good teams that if you need him to steady the ship for a month while Allen is dealing with some, you know, nagging ankle injury or whatever it may be, he can do that for us with with a quality team around him. He can put in a performance to keep things going. Hopefully, as we mentioned in episodes past out of a backup, you want a 500 guy, right? If he's going to be in there for four games, you want him to at least be able to win two for you. And I think he is exactly that. That is what Keenum can do for you. He can at least keep you 500 while he's in there. Just make sure nothing goes awry. And, and the season's not in doubt all of a sudden because you're without Allen for four games. And um, this game definitely showed that with quality people around him, he will be able to steady things and run the offense to a manageable point and just be able to get some sort of output from him that will allow you to stay in games and even potentially win games. That's that's all you want out of a backup. And he's very level-minded, very easygoing, and gets the job done. 
that's perfect for what you want out of a backup quarterback. Because guess what? You're not going to have Josh Allen backing up Josh Allen. That's never going to happen. You can't afford two $250 million quarterbacks. That's ridiculous. Then you have absolutely no one on your roster. Um, Josh Allen is special. He can't do everything himself. So Case Keenum is a very good backup option, and he showed it there this past weekend. And my anticipation, and this is a very easy one, is Allen and Keenum make the roster, Barkley will get released, and then come back on the practice squad. I don't think there's any risk of Barkley being picked up by another team, and he is such an ideal practice squad quarterback. And they don't. They, the Bills haven't even pretended to go a different route this summer. They've only carried three quarterbacks. They didn't even have that quote-unquote camp arm on their roster. So I feel like the quarterback position we thought was going to look like coming into camp is the exact way it's going to look going into the regular season. Let's talk about running backs, Luca, because after the draft of um, James Cook and after a pre-draft process of talking about taking Brees Hall and Singletary's going into a contract year, he played very well down the stretch last year, but there's always that part of you that's like, can you trust him? Is he a game breaker? Is he somebody that can be that 1A, that number one running back? Yeah, Luca, he's the he's the 1A in this offense. It's it's painfully obvious at this point. He's the only running back that didn't play last week when the starters sat. He's the only running back that played when Josh Allen was on the field for the game against the Broncos. And to your point that you told me off the air, when he was on the field, he looks dynamite. Spectacular. He was perfect. He um I think you mentioned this off air. I think we can even scrub the A label from that. He is number one. He is the lead guy. He's the person that we're going to have out there for any meaningful running snaps you would anticipate if he's, you know, healthy, ready to go and rested. He's going to be and he looked spectacular in that position this past weekend. I can't say enough quality things about Singletary. I mean, he was he popped. He he what you saw at the end of last year and bits and spurts and whatnot, and he definitely closed out strong, as you mentioned. It was there this past weekend on Saturday against the Broncos. He was just, he was cutting up the field perfectly. He was doing everything you want out of him, and he he will be the running game, hopefully, that will at least, you know, when you need to call on him and when you need a little bit of a running game, he's going to give you some quality output from that position, and thank God for that. I'm I'm glad we have a guy that at least we are comfortable and confident in at that position going into this year. Cause I feel like even last year where we wanted Singletary to be that it was painfully obvious to us that maybe he wasn't. And you were questioning, is it going to be a 50 50 with him and Moss? Where are we going? And then Moss didn't look great. And now you were all of a sudden very uncomfortable with that position early on in the season. And you just didn't want to see much out of the running game because you just had zero confidence in it. I feel like this year is a complete opposite. I'm confident in Singletary being the number one guy. And when anytime we need him to, give us a little bit of a run game, he is going to be able to provide that. Whether that's as much as Singletary as it is another position group known as the offensive line, I don't care. I don't care where the change came. The point is the change came and Singletary looks great. That's all that matters. And guess what? I'm very, very, very happy with that. This run game is going to have to be there. We all get enamored with Josh Allen's arm and throwing balls to Diggs and Davis and Knox and how how pretty it is when they go for 400 yards a game. But we all know that there's going to be situations where there's 40 mile an hour winds or it's zero degrees and the passing game just isn't going to be as crisp as you would like it to be on a calm, cool fall day. 
and you need to be able to rely on that running game. And Singletary proved to be that guy down the stretch last year, which helped the Bills on their winning streak into the playoffs. And there's no sign of him slowing down in this preseason or in this training camp. What I've noticed about him is he's always had that phone booth make you miss quickness where you feel like if you tried to tackle him in the, in the small space of a phone booth, he could get out of it. But he never really had that juice to then get back up to his top speed. And his top speed isn't necessarily an elite top speed anyway. We understand that. He's not what you would consider a fast running back. He's more quick than fast. He looks faster this year. He looks faster to me. And he looks like he gets to his top end speed faster. He's he's definitely, since his rookie year, gotten more decisive with his cuts. And I don't know if that's just integrating himself to the NFL game more where he's trusting his vision more or before he would kind of second guess. And he's always been with his agility, a guy that, you know, it, it can, it can almost be your natural instinct to dance behind the line of scrimmage because of how agile he is and because of how well he can make people miss. But man, when he just hits a hole and trusts his instincts, it's a thing of beauty. And while his top end speed isn't up there with like Jonathan Taylor and Dalvin cook, it's never going to be, He's fast enough to be effective. But speaking of fast running backs, Luca, our second round pick, James Cook, was on display this week. And I think we both agree that it's going to be the Singletary show. We talked about a couple weeks ago that James Cook is a guy that I think they're going to slowly build into the game plan. They're going to have some things cooked up, <laughs> cooked up for him. Uh, no pun intended, although it did make me chuckle that I fell into that one. And, um, you know, he'll come on the field when Singletary needs a respite, although I do think that Moss will also be involved, too. Um, I, I look at it more as like Singletary is going to handle probably 65 to 70% of the running back snaps and the other 30% will be divvied up between Cook or Moss, depending on what the matchup calls for that week with Cook also filling in maybe at like slot receiver in different packages to kind of throw off the defense. Um, but with James Cook, we've been talking about it since they drafted him. We even talked about it prior to the draft. When we were breaking down these prospects. He has something that no other running back on the Bills in the McDermott era has had, and it is that high-end top gear where he can just take a ball and get get it going upfield and look like the fastest guy on the field, and that was on display on Saturday. Oh, yeah. You have it in our notes here. It shows a lot of juice. Yeah. He showed he – out of all of our backfield, everyone that's in the, you know – in the options, we'll call it, you know, all our options in the backfield. He is the one that shows the most pop and has the ability to really turn up field and in a hurry. He can actually threaten the deep part of the field with his legs and get to that second level as quick as possible. You did mention Singletary is more, you know, quick than fast. It, Cook showed that he is fast. He's got a gear to him that no one else in this backfield has. And in, in a limited amount of, uh, snaps he he absolutely gave that appearance to everyone that was watching that game you know i believe it it was just it was there it, it was it was absolutely there he's gonna be i think you're what was it you said 65 to 70 percent for singletary 30 percent depending on what the game calls for will go to the rest of the backfield i think that's pretty spot on and Cook's going to be the guy that if we really need to stretch it from another position, whether it's, you know, starting him up in the backfield, whether it's lining him out, out wide in the slot, wherever it may be, but you want to create that mismatch from a running back position. That's exactly what he's going to do for you. It was readily apparent. He's going to be a guy. Um, 
what's not to like about what you saw on Saturday? I just, I, I don't even know what else to say about it at this point. Like it, it, he looked incredible. He, every running back looked incredible. We're going to talk about, you know, Blackshear even I'm sure a little bit here. It, it, everyone looked good and everyone looked like exactly what you want them to be for this offense. And it was, it was breathtaking at times, Josh, I'm not going to be away. It, it took my breath away to watch this backfield. It's not Josh Allen. It's not the wide receivers getting the job done. It was our running backs, a position that we were, I don't want to say uncertain on, but there were question marks there. Who's going to be the X factor out of the backfield. And it's not just one guy. Every guy looks like they're going to be able to provide exactly what you hope to get out of them in this offense from that position. And Cook is no different than Singletary Moss um, and potentially anyone else at that position. It's fantastic. I, it was spectacular. I, I love Cook. I love Singletary. I, even Moss is starting to get me to come around here. It was, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of what Cook showed us, and I'm a big fan of everyone else as well. It's important to remember that in 2020, down the stretch, Zach Moss was the best running back on this team and in, in many ways was the featured back heading into the playoffs against the Colts in that playoff game, suffered that devastating lower body injury. And there have been reports, I believe Joe Miller said on his podcast that either he talked to Singletary or somebody he knows talked to, or not Singletary, talked to Moss. And and Moss was just, was hurt last year and he was never up to 100% and could never get his recovery down well. And, you know, like when you're hurt, it doesn't just affect your speed. It affects everything. It affects your other workouts. It affects everything you do. It affects how you sleep at night. And those little things can all add up. And these are the professional athletes who are the best of the best. If you're not hitting on all cylinders perfectly, if you're just a little bit off in one area, it's going to show because everyone around you is an excellent athlete. I feel like Zach Moss is becoming almost a roster lock at this point in time, along with Singletary and Cook. And then that leaves the question of, can they find a spot for Blackshear? And I don't think the answer is yes there. I think it's going to be challenging. I think at this point in time, Blackshear would really have to make this roster on special teams, whether it's A, showing he can cover kicks at the level of a Taiwan Jones, or run away with the kick return battle, which at least based on the first two preseason games, he hasn't done that. Not that anybody has, but he certainly hasn't done that with his opportunities. McDermott did go out of his way to say that Blackshear shows a lot of juice. You can feel his speed. So that's going to be interesting to look at. Um, it's a good problem to have. I, I anticipate what will happen is Singletary, Cook, and Moss will make the roster. I'm assuming I'm assuming Taiwan Jones will make the roster um, because of his special teams. They consider him one of the best gunners in the league on punts. They will release Blackshear and hope to get him back onto the practice squad. Let's talk about wide receivers, Luca. Um, a lot of guys here. We, we know Diggs is excellent. We saw the big touchdown pass to Davis, and you just love seeing him use his size like that in the end zone and really moss a cornerback there. McKenzie was interesting in this game to me because not only did he start at slot receiver, but he was the kick returner to open up the game for the Bills after the Broncos got their field goal. I thought that was interesting. I love McKenzie as a kick returner. I think he's dangerous with the ball in his hands. You, as McDermott said about Blackshear, you can feel McKenzie's speed, and I know he had that big gaffe against the Colts last year where he just dropped the ball on a kickoff return. But, man, I feel like McKenzie's a, th a threat to score every time he gets the ball in his hands. I'm a little concerned about him having to run a full-speed sprint and then getting right into the huddle for a drive, so I don't know how that's going to work. But I don't hate it. I know that much. Um, 
what I thought was interesting was after they took Diggs out of the game, there was a segment when Diggs was out and Davis was still in. They brought Crowder into the slot and McKenzie was playing boundary. I thought that was very notable. And I felt like maybe that was an opportunity for Shakir to come in. And I still feel like that if there's an injury to Diggs or Davis, that maybe Shakir is that next guy up on the boundary. But the fact that McKenzie just continues to add to his resume, we know he can be the gadget guy. We know he can do the jet sweeps. We know he can be an electrifying returner when he holds onto the ball. We've seen this training camp and other times when he's gotten the opportunity to start that he can be a, a very solid weapon in the slot. If he can add boundary receiver to his game, my gosh, Isaiah McKenzie just continues to find ways to up his value. McKenzie is just an offensive weapon. It, we talked about it last week, and we saw it even again this week with uh, Khalil Shakir. But McKenzie just showed us this past weekend because we didn't see him you know, against the Colts week one in the preseason. He showed us that he's just a weapon. As you pointed out, every time McKenzie has the ball in his hands, he is a threat. He is a legitimate threat to potentially score, whether it's a return game or as a wide receiver or just weapon, as I'm saying here. He can score if you put the ball in his hands. He can't. I, it didn't surprise me that he was playing boundary and doing work while out there because we kind of saw that when he was needed to do that in a limited role against New England last year. And it's just incredible. It was a nice reminder. It was a nice refresher that McKenzie is a dog. He's a guy. He is going to be a weapon for this offense. And everything you said is spot on. And this wide receiver group as a whole, I, I don't really have much to say, like, honestly, when it comes to the wide receivers, because it was another game we watched this past Saturday where every wide receiver looked exact. I mean, it was I just said this about the running backs. I'm pretty sure every wide receiver looked as good as you would hope for them to be. And they are very good at their job. And that's an awesome feeling. And that isn't just, you know, our starting two or three. Right. I'm talking Khalil Shakir. I'm talking, you know, Crowder didn't even look too bad. I, it, Crowder is what he is, right? You're going five, six deep on this depth chart at wide receiver, and they all look as good as you hope for them to look. And that is just something special to have a, we're going to call it a problem here. It's not a problem. It's just a predicament that you are like, holy crap, what do we do with all of these guys? Because then there is that world. I'll just plug this in a little bit. We were talking about it at the end of last episode. What do you do if you sign Odell come October? Now you just add him to this mix. It's just an incredible problem or an incredible predicament to have this deep at a position where you're like, where do I play this guy? How do I keep everyone happy? Wide receivers are divas. Like, I'm not going to say that this is a, you know, we have a problem with this, but they're divas. They want the ball. Well, if you go five deep at a position and everyone's really good at their job and they want to keep playing, how do you manage that? And I just, we talked about it earlier. McDermott's going to figure out a way. It's a great problem to have. It's a great predicament to have. And this game showed us that every guy and every weapon we have at the wide receiver position is going to do a phenomenal job for us. And it's going to bring solutions potentially, not only for this upcoming season, but for years to come. And I know we talked about it a little bit off air, and it's probably a topic we'll talk about moving forward more, but there could be re a reality where these guys eventually maybe one or two of them are not going to see a long-term future with this team because eventually you got to draw the line somewhere and you can't pay everyone and make everyone happy. But we're so deep at certain places and we have younger guys like Khalil Shakir coming in and looking like a leg legitimate threat anywhere you put them. 
it's okay. We're going to be fine. And everything is going to be great moving forward where you're not going to see much of a drop off. If someone were to leave this offense, whether it's for injury or just not being able to pay years down the road, this is an incredible team and this position group, the wide receivers and McKenzie being one of them are just incredible at their job and are threats. And they would be starters on any team. Obviously. I mean, Khalil Shakir, I'm, I'm just going to pull away from McKenzie here. Khalil Shakir, I think could be a legitimate starter on half of this NFL's offenses. Like Khalil Shakir, let's put him in uh, Arizona just because I have, you know, the, the Ravens Cardinals game on right now, put him on the Arizona offense. I'm pretty sure he's wide receiver two or three. I'm, I'm almost positive of it at this point. Like, I don't know who else is going to stack up over him because even with Hollywood Brown there, Khalil Shakir to me has shown that he might even be more versatile and able to do more things for an offense that doesn't have as deep of a wide receiver room as the bills do. And that is just a testament to what they have done with this roster. And McKenzie is not going to be pulled off the field coming back to him because you want that guy to have the ball in his hand as much as possible. So then unfortunately Khalil Shakir is going to have to sit a little bit because he's young and he's just not up on the pecking order right now, but it's, I, I, I'm going to wrap up real quick. The wide receivers and running backs, like I said before, but the wide receivers are just so good right now for this team that it wasn't a surprise what we just saw this past Saturday. And I am so, so, so excited to see what this depth can do for us throughout the season upcoming this year. Yeah, and McKenzie and Shakir showing the flexibility to go inside and out just goes such a long way to answering that who's going to be that backup boundary receiver when at one point in time this offseason we're like, is that going to be Jake Kumaro? We are no longer living in that Jake Kumaro fear bunker as we've had guys step up on the roster. Um, Pro football focus broke down snaps with the the first string and they broke this down by the first string offensive line since Josh Allen did only play six plays, but then case Keenum did come on to close out the first quarter. Like Lucas said, um, so there were 10 plays with, with the bills first team offensive line out there and Gabe Davis played all 10 Stefan Diggs played eight. We know those guys are locked into their roles. This is where it gets interesting though. Isaiah McKenzie was on the field for seven. Jamison Carter was on the field for two. No other wide receiver got in the game when the offensive line was out there. It's only 10 plays, so it's a small sample size. We get it, but it's the only sample size we have. I think what we can we can say now about the wide receiver group is, barring injury, Isaiah McKenzie is going to be the starting slot receiver when we take on, when we, when the Bills take on the Rams week one, and Jamison Crowder is going to be on this roster. I think he has enough value as a veteran receiver who's still a weapon out of the slot, who still has the ability to understand how to find voids in zone defenses, still has enough juice to break a tackle or two. He's not Isaiah McKenzie in the open field, but I think he has a little bit more juice than Cole Beasley. And then you look at guys like Khalil Shakir. The numbers game is starting to get a little bit tricky there. Luca, I think this position group really, when it comes down to it, it's going to be Davis, Diggs, McKenzie, I think Crowder's very safe. Shakir is obviously safe. There's five. They're a pass-heavy team, so you could justify keeping seven if you wanted to, but that would be very tricky with other roster situations they have. I think the safe number is probably six. Most of us have probably penciled in Jake Kumaro for that sixth spot because of his special teams. It is worth noting, though, 
that Isaiah Hodgins was on the very first kickoff unit. And people have made a lot about Saran Neal, Tyler Matikiewicz, and Taiwan Jones not dressing for these first two preseason games with the idea that, oh, they're roster locks and all that. I get that. I, I think when you know what those guys are and why they're on the team, they're on the team to cover kicks, and you know they're good at it, there's no need to put them out there. And when you're going to make a bunch of back end of the roster decisions based on who can cover kicks well, why do I need Saran Neal and Tyler Matikiewicz out there covering kicks in preseason when I can put guys like Isaiah Hodgins out there and see what he can do? I don't need Isaiah Hodgins to be Jake Kumaro on special teams to make the roster, but I need him to at least be close enough that then I can put him on the roster because of his advanced offensive abilities that Kumaro does not offer. To me, Luca, that's really where the wide receiver conversation is at this point in time, because I think it's pretty obvious who the top three are. I think Crowder and Shakir will kind of rotate with those first guys off the bench. And then I think that wide receiver six conversation just comes down to Kumaro and Hodgins. I don't see a path for Tavon Austin at this point, unfortunately. I know that makes you sad. Um, but um, to me, unless I'm missing something, it's coming down to Kumaro or Hodgins, or maybe you keep both, but I find that to be highly unlikely. Yeah, I think six is the magic number. You're absolutely right. Unless there's something we don't know that isn't readily apparent. Um, six is the number. And I think you're spot on. I think it comes down to Hodgins and Kumaro. And I agree with you, too, when it comes to we don't need to see Hodgins be Kumaro out there. We just need him to be valuable enough for special teams and everything of that, where you can at least rely on him to do somewhat of a decent job. And then also that offensive upside difference between him and Kumaro is clearly there. So you you have to it's a cost evaluation thing, right? If the upside offensively is there, you don't need him to also get to that level of Kumaro on special teams. It just needs to be something close or within reason to Kumaro's upside at special teams to be like, yes, overall, based on whatever it may be, Hodgins is going to be that number six. I don't know where it stands. I do think what you brought up of Hodgins being out there for the first kick coverage team, that is something of note. Um, of note does not mean that I'm reading too much into it. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think they put a ton of weight into it. I think they just want to make sure he doesn't look like a disaster out there, and I don't believe he did. Um, I do. I, I will say I found it interesting. So. I know we talked off air that I did not, unfortunately, watch the second half of the game nearly as closely as I did the first half, um, just for personal things that were going on while I was out. But and you uh, call yourself a Bills fan? <laughs> you look, missed the drinks, flo- the drinks were flowing. You know, I I, I couldn't. The, the attention span goes when the drinks are flowing, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, regardless, I did. I will say this. This is the first time I've ever done this. I did try to pull up extended highlights of the game to see if there was anything noteworthy that I missed in the second half. The one thing I found interesting was an extended highlight showed kickoffs. I feel like that doesn't happen. But the reason they did is because our kick coverage wasn't that good. Mm -mm. I noticed that they were actually getting substantial chunks of yardage off of kickoffs. And I don't know if that has any relation to what we're discussing here, but it's something also of note. Like I said, I'm not going to read too much into it, but it's of note. So if Hodgins is out there primarily, and it's not our normal aces, we'll call them doing the kick coverage. And all of a sudden you're noticing that they actually were probably one or two cuts away from taking them all the way to the house. That might be something that doesn't support Hodgins being worth the special teams difference of Kumaro to the point of 
you need to actually have him on the roster over Kumro. I'm not saying, again, I'm not reading into it. I'm not putting a ton of weight into that. It's just also something of note. Um, I overall agree, though. I don't see it going to seven again unless there's something. You have to pull that from somewhere else. If you go to seven, you're going to another position and going one less. You have to do it. That's just how numbers work. You got to get to 53. It is what it is. It's been that way for a very long time. Six is the magic number. I think where it currently stands, you're absolutely right. The big three, you got Diggs, Davis, McKenzie. You got Shakir. I mean, honestly, I'm putting Shakir. It doesn't really matter because Crowder is a very specialty kind of situation, but I'm putting Shakir over Crowder at this point. I'm just going to be honest. I think Shakir gives you way more upside, even at the job that Crowder is very good at. Say what it is. I don't care. Um, They're four and five, whatever, however you want to put them. And then six at this point, I think still stands at Kumaro. I don't think you've seen enough out of Hodgins to really be like that. It's nothing against Hodgins. It's just, it's not like he's also, he's looked very good. I'm, I'm not shitting on Hodgins. I don't want anyone to think I'm talking negatively about him. I just don't think you've seen enough out of him where it's like, you have to roster this guy. He's jumped. He's leapfrogged Kumaro. It's Kumaro still doing what he does as expected as you want. And at that point of the depth chart, you want to know what you're getting out of them. And exactly what you get out of Kumaro is exactly what you expect to get out of Kumaro. And that's perfectly fine there. I am a-okay with that because he has a job that he does well at. And that's okay. We're not expecting Kumaro to be the sixth wide receiver to be an offensive weapon of any variety. <laughs> Kumaro is not on this team for that. That's okay. He does what he does. And you know exactly what you're going to get out of him. Perfectly fine. And unless Hodgins really does something spectacular, we'll call it game three to change my mind. I just don't see that happening. And that's the six. And that's just the way it's going to be. I, I, I feel bad for Hodgins because again, Hodgins has looked good as a, as a true wide receiver as an offensive weapon. It's just not something spectacular. I'll call it. It's not something that's blown me away. He isn't Victor Cruz back in the day when he was a preseason God for the giants, like Victor Cruz, that preseason run, it was like, yeah, this is a no brainer. He has to be on an offense. And obviously we know where Victor Cruz took off from there. Hodgins is not Victor Cruz. So therefore, unfortunately, I think we are where we are with those six wide receivers. So unless they're only going two tight ends deep or something, you know, out of that realm, six is the number. And unfortunately, Hodgins doesn't get the cut for me at this point in time. I'm with you. I think one wild card would be is, you know, Josh Allen has certainly reached the point of his career where if he felt really strongly like, hey, Isaiah Hodgins is somebody I have good rapport with and I don't want to let him go and I feel good about his future. That would carry a lot of weight in this conversation. Who knows if that's going on behind the scenes? It's important to remember the context of what we're talking about, not only with this conversation about Jake Kumaro and Isaiah Hodgins, but let's circle back to the conversation about Taiwan Jones against Raheem Blackshear. We're talking about a wide receiver six or a running back four to the point of when you have Taiwan Jones and Jake Kumaro, you can tangibly understand the impact they're going to have on the game. They are going to cover kicks for you. They're going to play on fourth downs and they're going to have an impact every single game for Blackshear, for Hodgins. If they're on the roster as your sixth wide receiver or your fourth running back, unless they're playing special teams, which they would in those positions, unless they're playing special teams really well, their impact as far as being wide receivers and running backs are not going to come unless there's injuries at those positions. So it's easy in preseason to fall in love with guys who make plays. I do it. I know I do it. 
the reality of the Bills situation here is Sean McDermott prioritizes special teams. He's always done that. He made a comment after the game about how he needs to see it. Somebody asked him like, hey, when you win a game 42 to 15, what can you work on? The very first thing he brought up, was, well, the very first thing he brought up was tackling. And then the second thing he brought up was kick coverage. And that's not a, that's not an accident. Now, you know, understandably that um, Matikiewicz, Neal, and Jones didn't play, and those are their three best special teamers. But I don't think McDermott is going to be in too, too big of a hurry to let someone like Taiwan Jones or Jake Kumaro go just for the idea that the sixth wide receiver on his team can be somebody that one day develops into a nice weapon. I still think it's an open conversation, but Kumaro's path is going to have to be by way of special teams. Let's talk about tight ends, Luca, because we did mention the situation with Dawson Knox. He was not there for the game. I think a lot of us thought this opened the door for OJ Howard to finally get an opportunity to get out there with Josh Allen. We can see what OJ Howard can do. The ones came on the field and Quentin Morris was in the huddle. And for the 10 plays, the starters were on the field. Quentin Morris was out there for seven of them. Tommy Sweeney was out there for three. And OJ Howard was only out there for one. It was a two tight end set. And I don't know what to make of this situation because when you look at OJ Howard's contract, this is a contract that the Bills have essentially fully guaranteed. So unless they can find somebody to trade for OJ Howard, and keep in mind, when we say a trade, this would simply be a, hey, take this guy's salary off our hands. You could even see a situation where the Bills send OJ Howard and a seventh round pick to somebody just to take the salary if they go down that road. But that's a long way off. I find it interesting that Quentin Morris was in that position. But then I also have a little bit of a theory. Okay, so I think that the way the Bills view their tight ends, if we always talk about like, okay, Davis and Diggs are the boundary receivers, McKenzie and Crowder are the slot receivers. I think the Bills maybe view their tight ends as instead of having a four tight end room, they have two tight ends in Morris and Knox that are really more of like that that offensive weapon who can catch balls in the passing game. They both can block, but they also have the ability to be out in the slot and be a weapon in the passing game. And then Sweeney and Howard are the blocking tight ends where they also can go out in the passing game, but you really bring them out like in two tight end situations where you need somebody to block. So I wonder if Quentin Morris's uptick in snaps is more so that he is like the direct backup to the role that Dawson Knox plays and not necessarily that it's an indicator that he's considered by the coaching staff to be the second best tight end on the roster. Are there different levels of different categories of tight ends on that roster? That could be a read on it. Luca, am I thinking about this too much? No, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think there is a lot of weight to the point that you have brought up. Um, because I I saw on Twitter a little bit that people were questioning it similarly to kind of how you presented it. It's like this could have been the opportunity for people to expect Howard to go out there and, you know, make an impact because Dawson, unfortunately, was not with us. And no, it was more Morris going out there instead. And then in two tight end sets, or at least the one time OJ Howard found himself out there. I do think there's validity to that. I think that point is spot on. I think they view Quentin Morris as the direct replacement to what Dawson Knox brings this offense, plain and simple. I think that is exact. That's exactly how to see this situation. And there is, I don't, I don't see why that's a problem. It's, it's a little sad because OJ Howard coming out of Alabama, that's not what you would have expected out of him. You, he was supposed to be one of these kind of offensive weapon tight ends that also can block. He was a great prospect coming in. 
I don't know if it's because of all the injuries that he's dealt with, the confidence issues, a combination of everything. I don't know what it is. He's still good at his job when it comes to blocking as a tight end, just being lined up there. But clearly, he is no longer viewed as that offensive weapon or having the ability or upside of being a weapon similar in the passing game. It's sad on that point, but if they recognize that, isolate it, they value him for what he is, and then view Quentin Morris as the direct replacement to Knox, I think that's a great mindset to have. Um, it's another good point to say, like, if they're comfortable with, you know, or they don't appreciate how much they're paying Howard to do that kind of job, trading him away for someone else to take on his salary and whatnot, it's a great idea. Um, I don't know whether there's much in that, but it's a great idea. I think it's a great point to bring up, and it's definitely something to evaluate or keep our eye on because if OJ Howard is here just to essentially be a blocker or just a traditional tight end that can catch a ball here or there if you really need him to, but he's not there for that job, why isn't it just Tommy Sweeney? Because I can't imagine the difference between Sweeney and OJ Howard is that great to pay OJ Howard the amount of money you are to do that job. So it's just a pure business decision at that point. It's not a knock against OJ. It's just you're paying OJ this. You have Sweeney for that and so on and so forth. Get OJ off because, I mean, hey, money could be very important for this team come middle of the season and they try to, you know, dip their toes in the water of Odell Beckham Jr. or someone else to bring into this team late because of injury concerns or whatever the thing may be that you want to have that cap space and have that money there for said signing. I think it's a great point, something to evaluate. But overall, again, I don't want to talk too much more. I think your point on Morris being the guy out there while Dawson wasn't with the ones, it's spot on. I think he is viewed at this point in time. It's pretty clear that he is viewed as the direct replacement to Dawson Knox. And that's how this that's how McDermott looks at it. And that's just the way it is. I I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Phenomenal point. I'm going to drop it right there. I think what's interesting about Quentin Morris is I feel like he's somebody that the Bills really wanted to take a long look at this game. And I say that because not only because he got so many snaps with the starters, but he was a four-phase special teams guy in this game, playing on all four special teams units. And I was listening to Joe Biscalia and Matt Fairburn, Matthew Fairburn's podcast called The Buffalo Beat. I highly recommend it if you're looking for more Buffalo Bills content in your life. And Joe Biscalia dropped a nugget that I thought was very interesting. And he feels like maybe Quentin Morris, while also being the direct replacement for Dawson Knox, is also being groomed as like a Reggie Gilliam backup, as a guy that can line up at fullback, line up at tight end, play all four special teams. That's not a guy that if you believe you can do that, that's not a guy you cut. Or maybe it's a guy you cut and hope you can stash on the practice squad. But you know, we saw he made a good downfield play last week against the Colts. We know he has the athleticism. Matthew Fairburn brought up that he's actually a really good blocker. Um, this could be a situation where we've seen it a lot where tight ends just take a couple years to blossom and maybe the bills have something here. I am not the biggest Tommy Sweeney guy. I, I think you know I, I get that he's popular in the locker room. I just have not seen anything out of him that makes me like really sad if the bills are going to move on from him. And I think it's important to remember the Reggie Gilliam piece here, where if the Bills are looking to to save some numbers on their roster, they do have the option to just have two tight ends 
and look at Reggie Gilliam as their third tight end. Those are all conversations we can have as we move closer and closer to that 53-man roster cutdown day because those are conversations that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott are probably having on a daily basis. All right, Luca, let's have a fun conversation about the offensive line because they absolutely dominated on Saturday. One interesting note is David Questenberry got the start at right tackle despite Spencer Brown being healthy. Spencer Brown played with the second team. Um, Sean McDermott was asked about that in his post-game press conference, did not say outwardly that Questenberry is the starter and all that. He said Spencer Brown is still working his way back. McDermott is so good in these press conferences where he'll say something without saying anything, and he's just such a master at that. Uh, Roger Saffold got out there, which was really good to see. He is just going to be such a good addition to this team. And honestly, Luca, my biggest takeaway from this game outside, well, let me say something first because Cody Ford and Bobby Hart are two players that you and I have been very hard on, on this podcast, two players that we have almost been saying like, why do the bills waste their time with these guys? Let's give credit where credit's due. They were two of the best players in this game on Saturday. They absolutely dominated at the point of attack and Cody Ford in the run game has always been able to move the pile. That has not been the issue with him. It's been those movement skills. It's been the passing game. It's been, how can he, how can he hold up in the passing game? Cody Ford so far, despite the fact that I was kind of hard on him for the one clip I saw last week, he got good grades the first week against the Colts. He's gotten really good reviews. The second game against the Broncos. If you listen to the people who cover the team, and I listen to Matt Perino, I listen to Joe Biscaglia, they're talking about Cody Ford almost more in that roster lock situation. I still think it's going to be interesting because unless somebody's going on IR, which I don't think is going to happen, or the pup list, which it doesn't sound like anybody's close to that, like Spencer Brown, you have the six, who you know, the five starters, and then whichever one of the right tackles out of Questenberry and Brown are going to be the backup, they'll be there as six. Tommy Doyle's not going anywhere. That's seven. You would think Greg Mance is going to be on this roster because he did come in with the backups at center this week, and that just looked so much better than when Greg Van Roten was supposed to play. was there last week. They they need that backup interior, and I think Mance is a guy that they're counting on, so that's eight. They're not going to keep 10 offensive linemen, so that leaves one spot for two guys of Bobby Hart and Cody Ford. Bobby Hart's a guy that much like Isaiah McKenzie, obviously at different levels, but has really shown to be more valuable than what we thought, which was a liability at tackle. He's a guy that has actually kicked inside the guard and been somewhat usable there, which is very interesting because we know how much McDermott likes his depth. Luca, the fact that I am saying glowing things about Bobby Hart and Cody Ford, the, the fact that I'm saying that we talked about before about how it felt like the Bills probably could have rushed for 300 yards if they wanted to this game with the holes they were opening up. I think we can talk. We're going to have a conversation about Questenberry and Spencer Brown. We'll save that for a little bit. Um, to me, this glowing review of the offensive line, I think it comes down to one person. Aaron Cromer is really damn good at his job. Aaron Cromer is what he's been able to do with Bobby Hart and Cody Ford. If it is one thing that makes sense, it's probably Cromer being really fucking good at his job. I think saying he's damn good is an understatement. He is phenomenal. He is really fucking good at what he does. I had to be careful. My mom listens to this podcast, Luke. I can't be dropping those F bombs. Well, I guess the, my mother also does listen. She, I mean, I talked to her, like I just said that. So sorry, Mrs. Luca. (laughs) Um, 
but no, yeah, he's he's really good at his job and he has been able to turn these lumps of coal into something of use and something of note. And they, I think you're absolutely right. I think they looked phenomenally well this past game against the Broncos. It was noteworthy. I mean, you don't run the way you run at a consistent level, no matter who's getting, taking the handoffs, unless everyone on that line is playing well. And your interior play, especially for how we like to run, needs to be on point, and they need to be able to do their jobs well. And Cody Ford, Bobby Hart, I mean, Greg Mance, everyone, I, your point on Saffold, man, he was just, oh my goodness, he's going to be. I'm so excited so, for him. Oh, oh man. Just, just stay healthy. Please stay healthy. Yeah, especially at his age. Like, it's unfortunate, but when you're that size at that age, just please, for the love of God, stay healthy or be healthy when it really matters. He is is such a huge human. He did an interview with Cynthia Freeland, and he was standing next to Deion Dawkins, and he made Dawkins look small. Yeah. And then when you watch him, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like he just has such good movement skills for someone that big and that age. Like, he's not a young player. I just... I start to drool when I think about what he can do for this offensive line. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. And, and again, I, I do want Dawkins is kind of what I feel like is a slightly smaller tackle. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it kind of just offsets in that way too. It's not that Dawkins is bad as a job. Obviously we know how good he is as a left tackle, but um, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's a monster. He's huge. He's, oh, he's a beautiful thing, but yeah, going back to Bobby Hart, Cody Ford, I think one position for the, either of them and, I think they'll ultimately, let me just cut to the chase here. I think they'll ultimately go with Cody Ford. He's been on the roster before. He's he's younger. He's got more upside to him. And as, essentially, that's what it comes down to because their play has been identical. I mean, it, it, you just go with the guy who's younger, been in the building more, and has a better upside to him. We, you don't want to make roster decisions on a championship caliber team based on their future. But at this point, what else is there to compare differently between the two? That's pretty much it. And... and I can't believe I am sitting here right now. It is currently, as we record this, Sunday, August 21st at 11.01 Eastern Time. I am currently saying Bobby Hart has impressed me, but Bobby Hart has impressed me. And it I really think that's more on Cromer than anything else because I just don't want to give any more props to Bobby Hart. But it, the knock on Bobby Hart might be slowly fading away just a little bit because, yes, at the interior position that he's been playing for us right now, he's looked very good. Um, I think Mance is, yes, you're just to kind of go around the offensive line here. Mance is going to make this roster. He looked much better mm-hmm. as that center for us. I think Van Rotten just didn't do the, he didn't do it. You know, it, he's just not, it just wasn't there. And Mance clearly was able to run that center position for us. So if we need a guy like him who has interior experience and can be a backup center ultimately as well, yes, he's going to make this roster. We need that kind of guy. You were spot on with that. Um, I don't think people want to hear this too. Quisenberry is going to be our starting right tackle. Okay. I, yeah. I just, let's get into it. Yeah. I, I, he's going to be our starting right tackle. It's, I think Spencer Brown isn't hundred percent and it's nothing that he's done wrong. I think there's enough evidence though, as we've talked in previous episodes that he kind of fell off a little bit last year, kind of like looked like a rookie. We'll call it, you know, let's give him the rookie pass here. He had a stellar, what was it? Three, four games when he first was kind of called into action at right tackle. Then he fell down, came down to earth a little bit. He looked like a rookie. He was a little slow. I don't know. I don't remember what his health situation was at that point in time. But regardless, let's just call it, you know, being a rookie, right? Questenberry is just a steadier, 
reliable guy at right tackle. And between that and then Spencer Brown missing time coming into the season and he's trying to get fully fit and ready to go right now, he's going to be the guy. And he looked good and he, he's not doing anything that's playing him off of that starting right tackle position. He's going to be the opposite bookend to Dawkins. And honest, I'm okay with that. I, I, I'm very okay with that. I, I think Spencer Brown's going to be a right tackle for future, right? He's going to be the guy. But right now, it's not about the future. It's about right now. It's about this season. And Questenberry, to me, is the better option right now. The great part of this situation is when Spencer Brown is fully healthy and stuff, and you maybe he will be 100% come week one. If something were to happen at Questenberry, you are very, very comfortable in knowing what you're going to get out of Spencer Brown. It's going to be exactly what you'd expect, maybe even a little bit better because he's got another year under his belt. Fantastic. That's a great spot to be comparatively to last season where you had no idea what you were getting in your depth at tackle. And luckily we just got Spencer Brown, who was an absolute unknown at the time. And he played well enough to earn a regular starting position. But yeah, ultimately Questenberry is going to be the guy. He's going to be the one starting week one at right tackle. I would be very surprised at this point if it's anything other than that. I'm with you. I, I don't think Questenberry has done anything to lose that job. I don't think he's been spectacular by any means, but the Bills don't need spectacular. They just need solid, and he's been solid, and he is very, very good in the run game. And we know while this team is going to be pass first that having a consistent running game is something that they want to be able to have as a counterpunch. Questenberry could end up being one of those really sneaky offseason signings that they got in the second wave of free agency to answer a big, big question for the Bills. Um, I think Spencer Brown is going to have to work his way back, not only health-wise, um, but in the good graces of this team, because right now he seems like he's behind Questenberry at every turn of the road. And this again comes down to Aaron Cromer. If Aaron Cromer feels like Questenberry gives the Bills the best opportunity to win when they take the field against the Rams, who am I to question Aaron Cromer? And I'm excited about what Spencer Brown can still be in the future. But like Lucas said, right now, this team isn't about the future. It's about right now. And it's about who can help this team get to the ultimate goal, which is hoisting that Lombardi trophy. I do think I agree with Luca. Cody Ford, the nod for that ninth spot. To me, Bobby Hart is a perfect practice squad candidate. Just a guy you stash, knows your system. And if you get a rash of injuries at guard or tackle, he can play either one. And that's very valuable. We, we know he's a meme. Um, nobody really wants to see him on the field, particularly at tackle. But if you can have a guy with NFL starting experience at tackle on your practice squad, I mean, that is just an embarrassment of riches. We talk about Bobby Hart like, like he's just awful, but he's started a lot of games in this league. And that is a great practice squad option for the Bills. Let's turn it over to the defense, Luca. Um, the defensive line, Von Miller did not play in this game. Um, Tim Settle also did not play. And I will be honest, I don't know the reason behind that. I have not seen a reported injury on him. Um, so we'll have to look more into that. Um, the starting defensive ends in this game were Greg Rousseau and AJ Epinesa. I find that interesting because AJ Epinesa appears based on not only starting this game, but also reading into what some beat reporters are saying, appears to have taken the leap over Boogie Bash. And we talked all summer and offseason about who's going to be that young defensive end to step up next to Von Miller out of the three of Epinesa, Rousseau, and Boogie Basham. And it's been Greg Rousseau to step into that starting role. 
But the next conversation is who out of Basham and Epinesa is that first guy off the bench. We know how much they rotate. And it appears to this point in time, Luca, that Epinesa has earned the trust of the coaching staff. He's gotten some really good reviews at camp. He started off really strong and then they put pads on. It seems like he quieted down a little bit, but then it seems like he's starting to, to flash a little bit more during camp. And now that camp's over in these practices, he, by all accounts, had a really good game on um, Saturday against the Broncos. The A.J. Epinesa story is interesting. When the Bills took him in the second round in the 2020 draft, he was largely viewed as a very good value. He was a guy that a lot of people thought could have gone in the first round. And then his rookie year was really chaos. It, this was during covid so players weren't allowed to come to the facility. So while normally rookies are coming in, they're getting on the on the weight program, they're getting um, firsthand in-person knowledge. He was doing everything over Zoom. And then the Bills had him cut a bunch of weight. They wanted him to play down closer to like 250. Uh, and he was up near 300 in college. He lost a lot of weight. Um, he was a strength-based player in college. And they're trying to make him a little bit quicker. And I think that transition hurt him. This could be a situation, Luca, where a guy like A.J. Epinesa is finally starting to find his footing in the league, um, comfortable at his playing weight, comfortable with the expectations of the Bills, and just, you know, maybe it's almost like last year was like a second rookie year for him based on the chaos that was surrounding him during that COVID year. Um, but it also could just be a situation where maybe Boogie Basham isn't quite the player they thought they were getting to this point in time. Where do you stand on the A.J. Epinesa-Boogie Basham conversation? I believe it's more of a circumstance where I've, I say this term a lot, but there's value in it. And I know people in other sports and stuff like that, there is a value to this one statement and is you want to know what you're going to get. And I think there's more of it with Epinesa that you know exactly what you're going to get out of him. And he, he does show improvement and things of that nature. Of course, I'm not saying that he is just fixed exactly where he is. He'll never get better. He'll never get worse. Everything like that. I think the problem is you don't know what you're going to get out of Basham. I don't think he is kind of producing the way or showing that he has the ability of like what you pointed out, that he was a bigger guy. He was a power driven player in college, and they're trying to mold him into something a little bit different. And he doesn't seem to be taking that. It does appear that it's more of a he's not exactly what they thought they were going to be getting when they drafted him when they did. It's, I, I'm not, the reason I'm saying that is I'm not blown away with Epinesa. I don't think Epinesa is someone that's really stepping into that next in the rotation spot. I don't think he's blowing everything away. He looks good at times. He shows flashes, everything like that. That's kind of what you get out of a depth player. He's not going to be a guy that you're going to rely on, on the key situations or when you're starting and everything of that nature, but he, he does his job. He's doing it well. But again, I'm not blown away. I think the problem with Boogie is they really don't know what they have in him still. And that's problematic now at this point. You you want to you want a guy like that to be able to provide something of reliable of a reliable nature, we'll call it. You want him to you know what you're getting out of him. And hopefully then there's upside from there. And I don't think they're at that point with him yet. As it is last week, we saw him, you know, make a big play. You know, against a very, what was it, a third string tackle? Right. I think it was for the Colts. Yeah. And he stepped up to the occasion and he made a play. Great. Again, it's a third string tackle. 
Like I would hope a guy of the caliber of Boogie Basham can make the play that he did against a third string tackle, a guy who's probably not going to be on an NFL roster come the final cut down when it, I think it's August 30th or 31st. Um, that's the problem with Boogie. That's the problem with this spot here. Is he going to make the roster? Probably. I think Boogie's going to make the roster. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about the drop off or there might be a gap. I don't want to call it a drop off. There might be a gap between Epinesa and Boogie, and I don't think it's getting closed anytime soon. I think it's, you know, you have obviously Vaughn, you have Rousseau. Those are your dogs. Those are your guys. We like to rotate. Your next guy in the rotation is going to be Epinesa. I don't see it going any other way. And then it's Boogie and or Shaq Lawson. That's kind of where you're at. And Shaq looked good this Broncos game. Yeah. He made a lot of great plays. I mean, he he could have easily housed a pick six, but it went right through his hands and hit his upper thigh. You know, and again, it's a defensive end. It's I'm not expecting him to have soft, great hands. You know, he made a good play, though. That's exactly what you want to see out of a guy making a play in that situation. Great awareness, made a great play. Is that going to make him, is that going to make the roster for Shaq Lawson over Boogie? At this point, I don't know. If that's where they draw the line and say Boogie's the bottom of the line there, then Shaq, I think, at this point is still on the outside looking in. But where I bring this up and why I bring this up is I think Boogie is starting to get to a point where they're, uncomfortable with him to the point of if Shaq can actually show something that they at least know what they're getting out of him. It's not out of the realm of possibility that they're going to discuss is Shaq worth rostering on this year's roster over boogie. It's a weird thing to say. Boogie's a second round pick. You really want to see a lot out of him. I think I'm alone or at least in a vast minority in this. When I say boogie has been so unimpressive to me, to the point where I am really entertaining that idea. I don't think Shaq Lawson is a stud. I mean, and everything of that nature, but I think he's at least given this bills organization. And I say that because obviously of his first stint here and this coaching staff enough of material to maybe get that conversation going. Like, at least we know what we get out of him. At least he gives us a production. We like seeing from time to time. Is he worth this championship roster depth piece more so than Boogie Basham at this point in time. I think that's a conversation that might be being had when we get to the final cutdown point. I, I really do. I don't know if that surprises you or not. I'll kick it back to you for that. But I really do think the gap between Epinesa and Boogie is definitely there. And then from the gap between Shaq Lawson and Boogie, I don't think it's much of a gap. I don't think it to at least from my eyes, if I from the outside looking in, if I were sitting there trying to, you know, say who do I want on this roster more, it's it's a debate. It's definitely a conversation I think to be had because again, this is about what can we do this season. I think Boogie has more of a future, of course, but what is it about this season? And there is definitely something to be said that Shaq maybe is going to be in the discussion of making this roster in the final fifty-three over Boogie. Yeah, so I am surprised. I I don't think there's really a, in my mind, a scenario where Boogie Basham doesn't make this roster outside of a situation where maybe like Joe Shane calls up and says, hey, would you take a third or fourth round pick for Boogie Basham and the Bills want to sell on that investment they made last year? So here's what we know. We know Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have been very patient with their draft picks. We've seen it. We just talked about Cody Ford. I mean, if there was ever a guy that you could have given up on many, many times ago, 
Um, they they stick it out with their draft picks. We talked about it with Zach Moss. There was a point in time people wanted to give up on Dawson Knox. Um, I would not anticipate that giving up on Boogie Basham is really anywhere in their minds at this point. But what you do bring up is interesting. The gap between Shaq Lawson and Boogie Basham, Basham may not even be existent at this point. I have been believing all along that the Bills will keep nine defensive linemen, five defensive ends, and four defensive tackles. So that would be, um, you know, Oliver, Daquan Jones, Settle, and Phillips. And then the five defensive ends we just talked about with Boogie Basham and Shaq Lawson being four and five. What I think will be telling, Luca, to your point, is there will not be nine active on game day. So when you get to that week one against the Rams, if Shaq Lawson is up and Boogie Basham is in street clothes, that'll be telling about where his trajectory is at this point in time. Sean McDermott is going to play the players that gives him the best chance to win a football game. He doesn't care about the optics of benching a second round pick. So if it comes down to it and he feels like even in the limited amount of snaps that Shaq Lawson or Boogie Basham is that fourth defensive end active on game day is going to play in a game against the Rams. If he feels like Shaq Lawson gives them more juice, gives them more versatility. We know Shaq Lawson can play on the edge and play well in the run game. He can also be a guy you can line up at defensive tackle if you need to and rush from the inside. Um, you know, I think his best football is probably, probably behind him, but he still plays at a decently high level and he brings a lot of juice. I could see a situation where Shaq Lawson is active over Boogie Basham, but I don't think there's a world where Boogie Basham gets cut or I, I don't know if you were thinking traded, but I do think they'll be patient with him in that regard. But it is interesting that AJ Epinesa, who just to circle back on that played at 275 to 280 in college and got down to 245 his rookie year, just an unbelievable weight shift. So maybe he's finally settling into something. I'm with you. I don't see a great player when I see Epinesa. I'd love to be wrong. He and I went to the same high school about 20 years apart. Um, but he, um, well, not 20. I just made myself sound really old, about 15 years apart. <laughs> um, but it certainly would be a nice like found money situation if after signing Von Miller, if we always talked about, we just need one of the three of Russo and Basham and Epinesa to step up and become a good player. It seems like Rousseau is already doing that. It, man, if we got two of the three, it, it could just get it could get really, really fun. So defensive line uh, has been dominant. They their best player did not play Von Miller. Um, I, I will say I was a little bit. I don't want to say I was a little bit unimpressed with the pass rush that they got on the first unit got, which it is what it is. You know, Leslie Frazier's not going to break out stunts in a preseason game against the Broncos backups. There's just no reason for that. It's much more man on man football. Um, so that kind of is what it is. Let's kick it to linebacker Luca. Um, everybody played, uh, let's see, it was Edmonds and Milano out there, but what I thought was interesting and this probably maybe piggybacks on what we talked about a little bit last week. Um, with regard to a couple of backups for the bills that, you know, people were giving some rave reviews about the Broncos came out early in a two tight end situation and it was Milano and Edmonds on the field. But when the bills went base personnel, it was Tyrell Dodson as that third linebacker with the starters. And it was not Terrell Bernard. It obviously wasn't Balin Spector, but I think a lot of us have been thinking all along that Terrell Bernard would be that natural third linebacker first off the bench in that AJ Klein role. And then when the bills want to come out and base be in that role, 
I will say a couple of things. One, I've always been a Tyrell Dotson fan. Um, I, I think early in his Bills career, he, his athleticism popped. Um, there were times he'd overrun plays. We even saw it last year when uh, Damian Harris broke the long run on Monday Night Football. He overran his gap. It happens. But Tyrell Dotson, to me, is a guy that I think this coaching staff has a lot of trust in. And then when you compound that with the observation we both made last week, in despite scoring a touchdown, Terrell Bernard just looked a step slow, didn't seem to have good instincts, maybe too much on his plate. I am not overly shocked that at this point in time, it appears that Tyrell Dodson is that third linebacker. But I will ask you, Luca, is this a situation where maybe it's two different conversations? In base, that strong side linebacker needs to be a little bit more physical. Is it a situation where maybe Tyrell Dodson is that third linebacker, but if the Bills, who are a primarily nickel team where they just play two linebackers, and in that situation you need to rely more on coverage, if an injury happened to a Milano and an Edmonds, maybe Tyrell Bernard would be the first guy off the bench to come in in those nickel sets. Could you see that situation? Or are you with me where your read right now is Tyrell Dodson is viewed as linebacker three, no matter what the scenario is? I'm with you about the the latter. I, I think Dodson is kind of just the true three. Um, I think there is definitely weight to saying that base package, he's going to be your strong side linebacker. He's the guy. He's going to give you a little bit more of a physicality or a physical nature, we'll call it, um, at that position than a Bernard. Uh, but what we saw last week against the Colts and everything with that with Bernard. I think Bernard needs a little bit more time under his belt. I think it's pretty there it, it's it's pretty readily apparent that maybe he's not up to speed 100%. Maybe he isn't that guy that yes, you can put out there when you need to have a true base out and you can rely on him to do his job appropriately. I think Dotson really is the third guy. If we come out in nickel and say there's an injury to Milano, uh or Edmonds, I think Dodson's probably going to get the nod at this point in time over Bernard period. Um, it's it's I'm with you. I, I think Dodson, I don't know if I would say I was a fan of his since the beginning, but I de- there's not like there was a hate towards him either. Um, it is a depth linebacker at this point, so I don't generally fall in love with a lot of depth guys, maybe as much as you do. Um, that's just a testament to how deep you get in roster sometime. But uh <laughs> Dotson definitely is a guy that, at least when he's out there, I think he can give you the production out of that third linebacker whenever he is out there that we expected in previous years. And I'm not going to just dread that moment in time. I think he's going to do his job accordingly. I think he's shown that when he's had to step in at times, yes, he overran his gap, as you pointed out, against New England and things of that nature. Everyone does that. Every linebacker in the NFL will overrun something or just read something wrong from time to time. We're all human. He just doesn't see the field as much. Let's just chalk it up as he doesn't have as much experience as a Edmonds or a Milano or whoever would get caught out there for any team as a starting linebacker. He's just not out there regularly. He doesn't have as much of a feel of the game. Let's call it that. So now in a situation where he is going to be our true base number three linebacker, yeah, he's going to be fine. He's going to do his job. I don't see any problem with that. I think Bernard could, you know, and that's fine. Like, I'm not hating on Bernard either. I think Bernard could probably learn a lot from sitting a little bit and maybe only being called upon when absolutely needed because he needs to, you know, figure out the NFL speed and figure out the NFL game a little bit more before you can rely on him on the field to do his job accordingly. So, 
I, I'm with you on the ladder. I think he's just Dotson is the number three at this point, and that's okay. I don't think there's any problem with that. I don't think it's a negative thing on Bernard either. Bernard's a rookie. We have to remember that. And it's it, we just have another guy here that can do the job a little bit better. Again, that's okay. Yeah, I think that the Bills are going to be, you know, they're probably only going to carry five linebackers at this point in time. They still have Saran Neal, who will be there at cornerback, who could also get them out of a game at linebacker. I would expect that the um, the big three, you have Milano, Edmonds, and obviously Bernard, the high draft pick. And then you have Tyrell Dodson. And then, you know, I think Tyler Matikiewicz makes the team. And then if they want to try to squeeze, I mean, Tyler Matikiewicz is going to make the team. If they want to try to squeeze Balen Spector on the 53, Maybe they'll go six. Otherwise, maybe he goes to the practice squad. That's going to be one of those tough decisions when they try to iron out this 53-man roster. Uh, cornerback situation, Dane Jackson did play this week, and he was in there for every single snap early on in the game um, with a rotation going on drive-by-drive drive with Kyrie Elam starting the game and then Benford playing the next two drives. And then um, Elam and Benford rotated series until eventually Dane Jackson came out and it was Elam and Benford getting a good chunk of playing time together, even into the third quarter. I don't know, Luca, that we learned a whole lot about Elam and Benford in this game. I think what we are learning is what we started to think about a week or two ago is that Dane Jackson remains ahead of these two in the pecking order. Leslie Frazier did have a press conference last week where he even said as much that Dane Jackson is ahead of those guys, both with experience and what he's done this camp. So it feels like if we're in a situation that is trending towards where Tredavious White is not going to be healthy for opening day, that Dane Jackson will be one of the starters at left cornerback and then or left cornerback at outside cornerback. And then um, it'll, I think what it's trending toward now is a rotation of Kyer Elam and Christian Benford uh, Elam probably gets the start. That would be my guess. I don't know if you want to call that draft pedigree. I don't know what you want to chalk it up as. I feel like these guys are pretty even, but I think Benford will be on the field. Um, did anything from these two stand out to you in this game, uh, Elam and Benford specifically? Nothing changed my mind this game about either one of them. I'm just going to double down on my, uh, I think Benford starts opposite, but it it's not like I'm going to be upset if Kyrie starting. I'm not going to, I'm not hating on it. I'm just going to say this. I think Benford is just a safer option to start. So if you're going to mm -hmm. start the game and you want to have kind of a, just steady that first drive, steady that first game of the season nerves out of here. I think Benford might be that guy they look at. Benford hasn't really had, I think he had one penalty on him uh, against Denver. Um, and even then I, I don't think it was much of it. Uh, whereas Kyrie had another call against Denver. I don't know why this randomly came out in my head, but I remember he got called for, it was either they called it holding or maybe even face masking. Face mask for Elam. Yeah. 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 They got like, he just clearly off the jump, off the snap, got a little bit shook, got a little bit beat. And he just instantly, his reaction was to use his hands and he snagged a face mask. We know that that is a kind of a problem and a knock on him. It's been a knock on him since his draft profile days. Um, he gets a little handsy and you don't want to award an opening drive to a team. Thanks to a nice, stupid, silly little play like that, where he panicked because he's still a little nervous. He's, he's got the butterflies going to start the season. This is all just my opinion. Again, we talked about it right in the beginning part of this episode. I am not Sean McDermott. I am not in that room. I'm not making the calls, but if it were me, I'm still going to say Benford's going to start in that rotation. Let me just preface that because I'm with you on it 
against or opposite of Dane Jackson. Then from there, it'd probably be Kyir the second drive and so on and so forth. Um, overall, though, no, I, I think pretty much status quo after this game with what we saw after the Colts game. Benford is a lock to make this team. Kyir is obviously a lock to make this team. They're going to probably rotate opposite Dane. And um, I just Benford's a dog. I love the guy. He's a nice, safe option opposite. But you want to see what you get and you want to get them both game tape. You want to get them snaps and experience. They're rookies at the NFL. Get them up to speed as fast as possible and then just get the season going. Overall, nothing much more than that from the corner position. And that's kind of where I stand. Nice little welcome to the NFL moment for these guys when they get to guard Cooper Cup and Allen Robinson catching passes from Matt Stafford on an offense drawn up by Sean McVay. Good luck, rookies. Um, so yeah, the Kyer Elam face mask was disappointing. He 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 lost the uh, initial part of the route and fell behind and then just panicked and grabbed the face mask. We've seen way too much of that from him back at Florida, hearing about it at camp, and then we saw it last week. He, he lost early in the route. Does not tr- for whatever reason as a guy who is a very high-end athlete, still does not seem to trust his athleticism to get him back in a route when he falls behind and he gets grabby. Um, I'm with you. I think that I think Benford, and it's it's wild to say this about a sixth-round pick, and I want to say this in a way that it's not me questioning Elam, more so impressed by Benford. It feels like with Kair Elam, it could be more of a roller coaster ride where maybe the highs are higher, but the lows are lower. And in a situation where, you know, this opening game against the Rams could be really tough. One bad penalty could be all it takes to, to seal the deal for, for the Rams. And, you know, Christian Benford may not have the highs, but maybe they just want somebody they can trust. We'll see how it all plays out. Both of these guys are roster locks. And again, for, for Christian Benford, that's amazing. Let's talk about one more depth cornerback, um, who I know is near and dear to your heart, Luca Cam Lewis. Um, I think it's going to be tough for him to make the roster, but I will say this. There's a couple of things working in his favor right now. One, I think as we get closer to the regular season and Tredavious White really is not doing anything, the reality of him starting the season on the PUP and missing the first four games of the year is starting to become a little more realistic. And in that scenario, the direct beneficiary of that would be Cam Lewis in my mind, because the Bills are not going to leave themselves short at cornerback. They value it too much. And he is just a guy that I know he plays more specifically slot, but he just pops every time he's on the field. He, for being a smaller guy, is just not afraid to stick his nose in there, run support. He's solid in coverage. And Steve Tasker made a very interesting comment about him on the telecast this weekend that Cam Lewis recently has been um, has been cross-training at safety. And I find that to be fascinating because it, when you look at the numbers at cornerback and the guys ahead of him, the path to making this roster at cornerback is challenging. But if, if you can be a guy like Cam Lewis that, hey, I can back up at safety and cornerback, all of a sudden you really make the bill start questioning things. Like, is it worth it to have a DeMar Hamlin over a Cam Lewis when Lewis can get us out of a game at two positions and Hamlin only one? Just things to think about. We don't know what the Bills are going to value when it comes to making their 53-man roster decisions. I do think the white conversation is one to keep an eye on. 
Um, but Luca, I know you're a big fan of Cam Lewis, so I, I don't know. I, that was the first I had heard that he was cross-training at safety, but it just makes a world of sense. To keep it simply and just a nice short, sweet statement on my part, um, I think they're trying to manufacture a path for him on this roster. I think that's what they, they value him as a player, as a football player that's been on this team before, and they have been able to at least rely in some capacity on. And now they see the reality of, shit, we might not be able to keep him in the capacity we've been. How can we keep this guy on this 53 or at least in this building for this team? Because he's earned that right. He has des he deserves them trying to really manufacture that let's call it the 53rd spot on this roster. I think, I think he, and, and I agree with that. I, I think what they're doing is good for him. I think they're really trying to create that path for him, whether that might be that utility defensive back or just trying to see what he can do for this team that maybe he could be a better asset somewhere else than where he's been before for us. Um, other than that, that's, that's pretty much it. I, I do kind of see the outside looking in, as more of a reality for Cam Lewis. But yes, the other part of it is if Trey White starts on the PUP, does that create a temporary space for him? And maybe that creates, you know, buys him a little bit more time to then carve a path onto this roster. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's, it's unfortunate for a guy like Cam Lewis, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it, if, if my opinion or my idea of what's going on is correct, it's kind of a cool thing to see. They're they're valuing a guy that's been around enough to really work hard with him, even though he's not a key guy, and see how they can still keep him around in another avenue somewhere. I think that's a cool thing. I, if that's really what's going on, I mean, that's just me speculating off. You know, I'm pulling that out of my ass to be honest. But I, I would like to believe that that's what it is. You know, they value him enough as a player, as a football guy around this team, and they want to see what they can do for him to keep him on this roster. That's really cool. I think that's that's an interesting thought to have about what's going on with cam. Another defensive back that had an interesting game on Saturday was Nick McLeod, who left the game with a laceration in his face, got six stitches in his face and came back in. What an impressive performance. Got six stitches and came back into a football game. I don't think there's a path for Nick McLeod to make the roster. Probably more of a guy that you can uh, pinpoint for the practice squad, but that is, that's just some impressiveness. So We've talked about, you know, offense, defense. There was not much to say about the kicking game, uh, obviously. Oh, Matt Ariza was six for six, perfect on hold. He did all the holding in the game. Tyler Bass made all of his kicks. There was only one punt in the entire game, but it was done by Matt Hawk. Sean McDermott's reasoning for that was the plan going in was Matt Hawk was going to have the first punt, and then they were going to rotate after that. There was only one punt. Uh, I think it's getting to a point where Matt Hawk feels like he's more in the way than anything. That's just my opinion with another cut down day looming here on Tuesday. I think it's probably time to say goodbye. Let's go ahead and let Matt rise up, be the guy, be the only punter, be the only holder, be the guy that doesn't have to wonder if it's his turn to punt. Let's get him out there. Um, hopefully there's some situ hopefully there's some situations where he actually has to punt in Carolina and, uh, you know, get his feet wet in an NFL situation where maybe he has to do a little bit more directional stuff, but it's time. Uh, this is big boy sports, uh, the professionals, uh, all due respect to Matt Hawk, but, uh, this, co this competition is over and I feel like it's time to stop pretending like it's not. Um, that is a look at the roster. We will certainly get more into it as the weeks go on, as we get a little bit closer to opening day. Uh, but now let's kick it around the league, Luca. 
Um, it's got some big news on the Cleveland Browns as it pertains to their game against the Bills this this year as Deshaun Watson's suspension was for 11 games. And that's important for the Bills because the Bills play the Browns in the Browns' 10th game of the season. Uh, Luca, you and I have kind of made a choice. We went on one little long conversation about the Watson situation. Um, Both obviously gave our thoughts on that. And, you know, just out of respect to our audience, we're probably not going to get into the details of that again. It's on the internet. If you want to look it up, feel free. But uh, just respecting people listening to this podcast, we'll just keep this in the context of football. Um, From a football standpoint, Luca, just looking at it through that lens, that is a huge advantage for the Bills to not have to deal with Deshaun Watson. Yes, on a purely football perspective yes absolutely you don't want to deal with uh deshaun watson the last time the bills had to face deshaun watson we don't want to think about um (laughs) sorry had to bring it up um so regardless yeah he's gonna miss that game i think the nfl has a sick twisted comedy to them the fact that they made it 11 or agreed to 11 and then the game that he comes back to which is week 13 a one o'clock kickoff in houston um, I'm just going to throw that out there. That it's, is just, there's, what, a, what? <laughs> there's so much annoying about this Deshaun Watson situation. The fact that they picked a random number like 11. So his first 11. game back can be against Houston. Um, we, we, we could do another hour just talking about their decision to only suspend him for 11 games based on what he was accused of and what seems to be, there's a lot of good evidence for, we're not going to get into it again, out of respect to our audience. You know, you guys are probably, this is a bill show. You guys can hear Deshaun Watson conversations, many, many other places. We, we will just move on. But, um, the, the news here, as far as bills go, there will be no Deshaun Watson. When the Browns come to Buffalo this year, it's probably going to be Jacoby Brissett, but you never know. It could be Josh Rosen looming to prove that he was the better Josh. Hey, I'm going to just say, uh, who's the other guy? It was the Tennessee quarterback, Josh Dobbs. Okay. It was. He looked pretty dang good earlier today. I had it on while I was like getting ready. I got a work week in Ohio all week this week, so I had to pack. had a family thing. So I had that game on in the background. Josh Dobbs looked pretty damn good. I'm not going to lie. He could be, he, he might have more upside than a Jacoby Brissett. Just going to say it. Throw it out there. He looks good. Is he, he looked different? Josh quarterback on the roster. I mean, he's better than Josh Rosen. Well, there it is. Yeah, I think Josh (laughs) Rosen, he was eight for 20, if I remember correctly, looking at the box score. Yeah, just awful. Yeah, we can move on from there. We don't need to talk about Josh Rosen. Well, speaking of the 2018 draft class, a superstar from that class, Derwin James, got paid this week. A contract extension that makes him the highest paid safety in the league. Four-year, $76 million extension. Good for Derwin James, a guy that struggled through injuries, but just an unbelievable player when he's on the field. But Luca, a lot of Bills fans' first thoughts went to, does this make Jordan Poyer's demands go up? Uh, no, my my humble opinion is absolutely not. Derwin James, so in our Discord, I'm going to give a shout out to Lara. He's a Chargers fan we know of. Um, I was like, wow, that's a shocking number to see a safety get paid. And Lara's instant gut reaction out of it was, well, he's not just a safety. And he's absolutely right. Derwin James is a one-of-one utility defensive force. He's used all over the field in the best place they can, and he makes a massive impact wherever he is on the field, wherever he's lined up. Derwin James is not just a safety. 
I'm not saying Poyer isn't very valuable. I'm not saying Poyer isn't an impact player. It's just Poyer is a safety. He can play in the box as a safety. It's just you're not going to actually line him up as kind of a slimebacker, right? You're not going to line him up as a slot corner or a defensive player in the slot. That's just you, you, you might do it here and there based on package sets that you have to adjust to, but it's not something that you're actually going to intentionally do. The Chargers do this with Derwin James. They intentionally put him in those predicaments or circumstances because he's going to excel, or at least they think he is, and he has shown that he does excel wherever they put him based on whatever is going on. So I think it, I, I don't want to say it doesn't impact it at all because, of course, he is a safety and he just got paid, which moves the market. But overall, the that's where kind of the correlations between Derwin James and Poyer end. They both at a core play a position of which they get paid to do. But the similarities are done from there. And even their age gap is different. There's a lot else going on that maybe it gives Poyer another million dollars. I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm just pulling that out. I don't think it really impacts him too, too much, in my opinion. And that's kind of where I'll leave it. Like, Derwin James is a one of one. He is a unbelievable athlete and talent that then as a base safety. But again, he plays all over the, he just makes an impact. He is a deep, I call McKenzie and Khalil Shakir offensive weapons. Derwin James is a defensive weapon. He is just a threat anywhere among the 11 on that side of the field. That is what he is. So he deserves every penny he just got. I don't think it, I don't think it impacts Poyer much of all much at all. Jeez. I can't talk. It's, it's late here, Josh. It's very, very late. Well, respecting the fact that it's late, we will try to wrap this up for you here quickly. Derwin James is everything that Jamal Adams thinks that he is. Um, the biggest thing here is, even though I think you could make the argument that Jordan Poyer and Derwin James are the same level of safety, and I think that's very true when you look at the NFL Top 100, they're both rated in the 40s. Jordan Poyer was first team All-Pro last year. He's amazing. Um, Jordan Poyer, you know, you can say all these good things about him. The way the NFL values players there is one stark difference between Derwin James and Jordan Poyer. One guy is 26 years old. One guy is 31 years old. A guy that's 26 years old is not going to be the foundation for a contract that's written up for a guy that's 31 years old. It's just the way that it works. I know Rachel Bush, who is Jordan Poyer's wife, has already been putting out cryptic tweets since that, saying things like, if I just, I, I got to be careful about saying what I want to say on here, and then she deletes it. Um, you know, I, I understand her position on this. Obviously this is life changing money for them. It's, it's probably from their standpoint, a frustrating situation. Um, we can maybe get into this on a future show. I am less confident today than I was several weeks ago that an extension happens here. I don't feel like maybe it's as imminent as I once thought, but it's certainly something to keep in mind. All right, quickly. It was a bad week for rookies when it comes to injuries. Uh, the Bills' first opponent, the Rams, lost an important depth piece. Third-round pick guard Logan Bruss out for the year with a torn ACL. You hate to see that. He was not a projected starter for them, but still, you hate to see somebody first year in the league torn ACL. Wish him the best in his recovery. Luca, this is tough. You know, obviously, we're not Patriots fans, but, you know, we're both Tyquan Thornton fans, and uh, he was actually flashing. Now, he was a guy that we both thought was a little bit overdrafted in the top end of the second round, but he has speed for days, had a collarbone injury. Looks like he's going to miss the first eight weeks of the season. And for a Patriots team that was not long on weapons to begin with, 
This is a tough, tough loss for them. The Bills do not see the Patriots until December. Their first matchup is December 1st, so there is a good chance that Thornton is back in the lineup by the time that happens. But man, you hate to see that happen to anybody, but particularly a young player in his first NFL preseason. True, but I will also add this. Patriots hate rookies, and they definitely hate rookie wide receivers. I'm I'm not. Am I throwing shade about a particular person? Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) I don't know. But yes, overall, yes, we are we are Taekwon fans, and it is a damn shame to see a serious injury of that nature, collarbone break, eight week. That that sucks. It, it's definitely it, it. You'd never root for injuries. It's it's always a core thing. No matter who you like, hate in the NFL, you never want to see a player get hurt. I, it's it comes into the, like the I want to beat the best kind of situation. You also want to see the best. You want to watch around the league as much as you want to watch your own team. You want to watch around the league and watch these teams be at their best and see what they have to offer. Taekwon could have been one of those guys. Again, Patriots don't really like rookies. Bill Belichick hates rookies, hates rookie wide receivers. I don't know if he just doesn't like how they do their jobs or lack thereof, but whatever. Uh <laughs> I really hate how they traded Nikhil Harry. Just gonna say it. Just, oh my God, just a joke. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a definitely a damn shame. And um, hopefully he has a speedy recovery. Uh, hopefully it doesn't hurt the Bills when he comes back. But you know, hopefully he is back by that point, right? You know, hopefully he's healthy and he's back out there and can be whatever he is. The Bills' next opponent in this preseason is the Carolina Panthers, and they have a rookie quarterback on their roster, but he will not be active for that game. Because Matt Corral, one of Lukey Lukey's, oh my goodness, I'm getting tired too. One of Luca's favorites in the draft is out for the year with a Liz Frank injury. And what's interesting about that, Luca, is he's in a situation where he's behind two former first round picks in Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield. I don't think either one of those guys has really like established themselves as the guy in Carolina. They have yet to name a starter. I don't think the path was there for Matt Corral to take the starting job this year. I do think there was a path there for him that if the season started to go in the tank and both of those quarterbacks struggled, that maybe by October, November, they they turned to Matt Corral. And then he has a situation not too dissimilar from like a Davis Mills where he gets a half a season to prove himself. He does really well. And then he's the guy going into the next camp. And that's really unfortunate for him because when you talk about a guy who was a third round pick that now is going to miss the rest of the year, there is just no way that the Carolina Panthers are going to be in any situation going into next year where they're counting on Matt Corral to be their guy. But just let's have a larger Carolina Panthers conversation very quickly here. And, and if you want to say anything about Matt Corral, feel free. Uh, the Panthers did say that they do play the Bills coming up this Friday at 7 p.m. Um, they are going to play their starters, Luca. Um, probably a team that needs a lot of work. They have a lot of young players. They have a coach that is still trying to figure some things out there. And they they still haven't named their starting quarterback between Darnold and, and um, Baker Mayfield. So it looks like the Panthers are going to be playing their starters. I know what your answer is going to be on what you would want to do, but do you anticipate the Bills are going to match the Panthers and play their starters? Because I most certainly do not. I don't think Sean McDermott is going to put anybody of any consequence on the field outside of Kyir Elam and Benford. I think those guys get a lot of run because right now every rep is very, very valuable. Absolutely. Play Kyrie and Benford. We are looking at them as starters, but it's in asterisks, right? You know, the rookies you want, as you just said, they need 
game time. They need just this is free game time. This is free practice at the best level you can get until it matters. So, yes, you want to play that. But no, fuck no. Don't play a goddamn. Sorry, Mrs. Out. Luca. He did it again. <laughs> Absolutely do not play these guys for the love of God. I understand Carolina. And, and again, we're going to go into Carolina here real quick. They haven't named a starter, but okay. A couple things. I roll. What a joke. Mm -hmm. You traded for Baker Mayfield because you didn't like the current situation of which you had at that position, which was essentially Sam Darnold on a fifth year option. And now it's beautiful in a way that they have to pay for that mistake of paying him his fifth year option because Matt Corral, who could have been a nice little cheap option there to then trade Darnold to someone else, whatever you want to do with him, you have him as the backup. Well, now he's out for the year. So Sam Darnold is going to be I think maybe the most expensive backup quarterback in the league this year um, because Baker Mayfield's your starter. Let's let's not kid ourselves. It's crazy to me that they're actually going to they're going to play Baker Mayfield a good amount in this upcoming week three preseason game. I why just a guy who's coming off of a previous season with a serious injury. I know you want to kind of get him reps. He looks kind of like the Baker of old, whether that's good or bad is a debate, but he looks like the Baker of old from what we've seen. He looks like he's healthy. He had a long offseason. He's fine. Why in the world are you going to play him before you can have a quarterback in their best position possible? Also known as week one, fully healthy against a team. He is absolutely motivated to rip apart in the Cleveland Browns. I don't understand it. What are you doing, Carolina? But guess I'm going to go into it in a beautiful statement that I love to say all the time. Bad organizations continue to be bad, and this is just example one billion of that. Just a dumb, head-scratching move on their part. To bring it back to the Bills, absolutely not. Real quick, do not play your starters. I don't care what Carolina's doing. Like The only thing is, I haven't heard anything. They're not playing McCaffrey, are they? Like, I, I, I can't imagine. God, I playing. would hope not. I mean, as a, as a guy who has McCaffrey in a dynasty league that I know nobody listening cares about, I really hope not. I mean, that's the one starter that I don't even think they're dumb enough to play. But even if they do and you see McCaffrey out there, do not follow suit and be like, oh, let's just play all our number ones because we'll act like this is a little bit of a, you know, scrimmage. It's like F no, like that's there's there's yeah, a nice better. F instead of yeah, there. He's go. coachable. Uh, <laughs> so just do not play them. Please, McDermott, if you do again, as we talked about early in this episode, I'm not going to question it. But damn it, I just do not want to see it. You, As you specifically said, you cannot get hurt if you are not dressed and on the field. Plain and simple, let's, let's make sure we are fully healthy and ready to go come week one when we are in Los Angeles playing the Rams on their banner night. Please, 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 for the love of God. And just one last thing, I feel so bad for a guy like Matt Corral. I really do. I, you know, Obviously, we're a Bills podcast and stuff like that. He's a guy that realistically, if he didn't get hurt late in college, could have been a guy drafted much higher than what he was. And I mean, he didn't have a great preseason up until this point, really. But you want him to get reps. You want him to learn. And the only way he will be able to do that is by being healthy and available. Well, that's gone. This is going to keep him out for the entire year, as we have just pointed out. And that just sucks. That could be something that completely stunts his development to the point of he will never turn into anything. And that's sad. A guy's career is already potentially over before it even got off the ground. 
And you just, you never want to see something like that. And it is horrible to see that with a guy that, as you pointed out, I liked coming into this year. I liked the upside. I liked what he, he had swag. He had an arm and he could do things in college that I'm like, this is a guy worthy of an NFL roster spot and worthy of drafting with a legitimate pick. That's how I looked at him. And it just sucks. It sucks that this could potentially, I'm hoping it's not. And obviously there's plenty of examples where this does not stunt anyone's growth, but hopefully this did not really hurt his chances of having a career in the NFL right before it got off out of the gate. Yeah, it's a shame. I, the Panthers are an interesting team and we don't have to get too much into them here because you know, it's just a preseason game, but man, they have drafted really well the last few years. Brian Burns, Derek Brown, um, they got J.C. Horn. They got Akima Kwanu this year, who's an offensive lineman we both really love. Um, they obviously have D.J. Moore. They, they even got Yatir Gross Matos in the second round a couple years back. It's just it's the same thing we talked about during the 17-year the drought. It all looks good, but who's the quarterback? I feel like if Baker Mayfield can come in and just be like a top 20, maybe top 15 on his best day quarterback – this is a team in the NFC that we know is not very, very heavy on uh, good teams that I think can make some noise, but I am not confident in the operation there. And to Luca's point, bad teams stay bad. But hey, Bills fans, have some fun on Friday because you will get to see Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold, the two quarterbacks taken ahead of Josh Allen in the 2018 draft. So in some alternative universe, you can get a look at what the Bills could look like today if things had gone different on that draft night. Um, so have fun with that. We will have fun watching this Bills game on Friday coming up against the Panthers. We would like it very much if you keep it glued to the built-in Buffalo Podcast Network. The remainder of this week, we will get you ready for this game coming up against the Carolina Panthers and keep you up to date on all Bills news as it breaks. And Luca and I will be back next Monday for another edition of Bills Chat. Bills Chat.